Yeah, I would anticipate about that. So, Michael, thank you for being here. Um, I'll ping you back when we're back in session. Um, we're going to stay in this room for closed session. Um, so we're going to turn TV off. Um, yeah, I'm just giving a little update here. Uh, I'm going to ask the staff to stay um, for, for the meeting. Um, and, uh, and then we'll clear the room with, from everybody else. So in about a half hour, probably. Great. Thank you, Dr. Noon. Could I please have someone read us into close? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose to discuss or consider the identified subject matter. Public safety under section 2.2-3711A19. In particular, discussion of reports or plans related to the security of any governmental facility, building, or structure, or the safety of persons using such facility, building, or structure, and personnel under Section 2.2-3711A1, in particular, assignment of specific public officers, appointees, or employees. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. All those in favor say yes. Yes. All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries, and we'll move into our closed meeting. All right. So we are at section 2.03 reconvene to open meeting. If I could have a motion to reconvene us to open meeting, please. Oh, oh, um, Ms. Tice, Tice, go ahead. I move that the board reconvene to open meeting. May I have a second? Second. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you. And now we're at 3.01. We're going to certify the closed meeting. If I could have a motion, please. Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Whereas the Falls Church City School Board has convened a closed meeting on this date pursuant to an affirmative recorded vote and in accordance with the provisions of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, and whereas Section 2.2-3711B of the Code of Virginia requires a certification by the school board that such closed meeting was conducted in conformity with the Virginia law, now therefore be it resolved that the Falls Church City School Board hereby certifies that to the best of each member's knowledge, one, only public business matters lawfully exempted from open meeting requirement by Virginia law were discussed in the closed meeting to which this certification applies, and two, only such public business matters as were identified in the motion convening the closed meeting were heard, discussed, or considered. Thank you. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, uh, Vice Chair Gould. Ms. Goodell, could you please take the roll? Yes. Uh, Ms. Downs? Yes. Dr. Gould? Yes. Dr. Ortiz? Yes. Mr. Reitinger? Yes. Ms. Silverman? Yes. And Ms. Tice? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Goodell. We're going to now move on to Section 4, our work session. And before we get started, I um, was remiss in not welcoming our new student representative, Michael Kasher, if you want to wave to the fans. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, joining us. He's our new uh, student rep, and we're so happy to have you on board. And thank you for joining us in the, the beginning of your summer break, especially. We really appreciate it. And so we look forward to your uh, thoughtful contributions and never you know, hesitate to raise your hand and jump in whenever you want, okay? Thank you. Thank you. 
Sure, thank you so much. All right, we're gonna move on to section 4.01, school safety and security presentation, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Noonan. Thank you, Chair Downs. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to see you um, in public again. Um, this evening, um, we would like to speak with you uh, about our school safety and security plan here in the city of Falls Church. Um, we have made this a work session so that um, throughout the presentation, if you have questions, you can certainly um, consider us interruptible and ask us questions as we go along. Um, we have about 30 slides that we want to share um, this evening that gives you sort of a broad sense of where we are and what we do with respect to school safety and security. This evening we have the full team here. Um, John Brett, our Director of Communications, Rebecca Sharp, our Executive Director of Special Services, Brian Fowler, our Director of Facilities and, and Facility Services, Facilities and Maintenance, I can't ever get your title exactly right, except just fixes everything. Um, Kristen Michael, our Chief Operating Officer, and Trish Minson, our Chief of Legal Services. Um, each one of them this evening has a role in the presentation because um, one of the things that we know about safety and security is that it's not a single point of failure, um, that it's a multiple, multiple things need to be taken care of um, when, we're, when we're talking about safety and security, whether it's policies, whether it's practice, whether it's facilities, um, and whether it's um, social and emotional health, and so tonight, and communication. So tonight, you're gonna get a chance to hear from each of them. Um, this, this presentation obviously comes at a time um, where we've had some recent critical incidences in our country that are particularly um, devastating to us as a school community and the most recent being Uvalde, Texas. Um, we are um, a school division that, um, whose heart goes out to those that live in Uvalde, Texas, um, the families and the like, and uh, as, as you struggle and suffer, uh, in, as they struggle and suffer in their community, um, I just wanna publicly say that it's not in vain and, and that our work here um, and, and the, the fact that we're doubling down on our conversations about safety and security um, is just another example of out of tragedy how um, it helps some areas uh, become better at what they do. Um, doesn't take away the pain, doesn't take away the suffering, but um, please know that um, we have learned from you uh, in Uvalde. Um, the other thing I wanna share um, before we get started and talk about um, these issues around safety and security is that um, oftentimes when we do think about safety and security, <clears throat> our mind immediately goes to some sort of active incident where um, there might be an active shooter or an intruder in the building trying to do harm to children or to staff or to others. And tonight's presentation is much broader than that. Um, so this evening you'll hear um, sort of how we deal with all sorts of critical incidences in our school, whether it's a gas leak, um, whether we have a hurricane incident or a tornado, whether we have an earthquake, which we had several years ago, you may remember, um, whether we have an active intruder or an active shooter, um, or even in cases where we have um, something happening in the local community. And I mentioned it to the board earlier in our um, session that we did, we did uh, a couple of years ago have to go into a shelter in place in lockdown because there was a local bank that had been robbed and as a consequence some some of the the perpetrators were on the run and we wanted to make sure that our kids were safe so there are a variety of reasons why um, we continue to make sure that our safety and security programs are um, up to date um, uh, also influenced by research and data um, practiced 
and ultimately, um, in certain circumstances, um, engaged to keep our kids safe. So the first slide that you'll see that's up on here, um, and it's sort of a riff on what I often say, I often will say safety never takes a holiday. <clears throat> and, and that is the case right now too. Even though we're in summer school, we are seeing students. We also are seeing students who are part of our city camps and the like. And so all of the things that you hear about today are things that continue through the summer. So long as we have people in our schools, we'll continue to maintain those safety and security options. But safety doesn't happen by accident. Um, we, we definitely plan, we definitely practice, and, and when necessary, we engage. Um, so with that, um, Chair Downs and School Board, I'd like to turn it over to um, Kristen Michael, who um, will begin the presentation, and I'll see you sort of at the wrap-up um, at the end. Thank you so much, Dr. Noonan. Um, FCCPS's safety planning really starts with us listening to national experts. In addition to the guidance and requirements that we get from the Virginia Department of Education, FCCPS utilizes resources from a number of organizations. The Virginia Department of Criminal Justice Services provides us with a wide range of information, including school safety, bullying and school climate, crisis and emergency planning, school safety audit data for the whole state of Virginia, and also information on threat assessments. The U.S. Secret Service and the U.S. Department of Education report provides us with information on the Safe Schools Initiative. That was started following the attack at Columbine High School in April of 1999. And the objective of that initiative is to help communities across the nation formulate policies and strategies that are aimed at preventing school-based attacks. We also listen to the National Association of School Psychologists. They use a model called PREPARE, prevent and prepare for crisis, reaffirm physical health and welfare and our perceptions of safety and security, evaluate school psychological trauma risk, provide interventions, respond to mental health needs, and examine the effects of crisis preparedness. And then the National Center for School Safety, which is based at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, they're focused on improving school safety and preventing school violence. So those are just a few of the experts that we listen to. So using the guidance and the information that we have from experts, we have many um, school strategies that we use for safety. First, our administrators, teachers, and really all school staff foster a respectful and supportive learning environment and culture that provides opportunities for students and staff to develop relationships, which is absolutely critical to having that sense of belonging and connection. Effective communication is always at the core of our prevention and response planning. <clears throat> school climate assessments, both through the state and through K-12 Insight, provide data that we use to improve our school culture and the climate in our schools. Our physical security systems and processes are audited and reviewed to ensure that they're working effectively to protect students and staff as they've been designed. FCCPS's fantastic student services team, which is comprised of counselors, psychologists, social workers, and behavioral specialists, support that school connect connectedness. We also collaborate very effectively with the Fairfax Health Department and their community services board that provide us with additional support for our students. We also work to ensure that our sense of community remains strong and that when people in our community see something, they say something. If they have a concern about a fellow student or a staff member, by sharing that information, they ensure that we can provide support and intervene when we need to. 
Preventing and addressing bullying is a true critical strategy in ensuring school safety, and our partnership with our colleagues at the general government's public safety functions, which include police, fire, and emergency management, are truly key to our success. Our ability to plan for, to prepare, and to address and recover from a crisis are all essential to ensuring that our students and staff are safe. So this evening on this agenda, um, we're going to go through all of these different topics of school safety, and you'll see that they're really impacting every piece of our organization, which is why so many of us are here speaking with you tonight. So first, we have requirements from the Virginia Department of Education, and they require that all school divisions complete an annual safety audit. This audit consists of multiple components, and they're completed both by school administrators and central office administrators. So each summer, principals and FCCPS's director of facilities, Brian Fowler, complete a school and division safety audit for the state. Our superintendent certifies our crisis management plans, and then our students also participate in the state's school climate survey as required by VDOE. Then every three years, and our next year this is up is 2023, we complete a much longer school safety inspection checklist that really helps to ensure that we're staying on top of our school safety. I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca Sharp. Good evening. As we started down this path of looking at crisis response and listening to the experts that were that are out there and combing through the research, one of the pieces that was really clear was that we needed to have a strong framework for crisis response. And if you look at the slide, you will see five components that are research-based in terms of how a system should respond to a crisis, whether that crisis be an intruder in the building or, like Dr. Noonan said, other crises that can occur and impact a school system in particular. So the first component is prevention. What are we doing to prevent that intruder from getting into the building? What are we doing to prevent a fire from starting? So that's our first piece. And so as you build your framework for a crisis response, that's, your, that's where you start first. What are we looking at to see how are we preventing that for, um, incident from happening? The second piece is mitigation. What are those measures that prevent and reduce the impact when something bad does happen? And, you know, some, and those are, if you think about, we just went, we're still, I think we're still more maybe in the recovery stage, but if you think about our response to COVID, that's a great example of looking at a model for how we responded to a crisis. Under mitigation, we had strategies that prevented COVID from entering our school buildings. We also had mitigation strategies that once it was in there, we were able to reduce the impact. So that's the difference between prevention and mitigation. The next piece is preparedness, making sure that we have really strong activities that are in place to enhance our ability to respond. Just like the folks are gonna talk to you a little bit um, later in this presentation about specifics that, that we employ, but this is all going to that preparedness component, making sure that as a system that we are prepared and ready to respond. The fourth component of crisis response really is your response. What are the actions that you are carrying out 
when there is a threat or a crisis occurring in a school building in any setting actually. So what are we actually doing at that moment? And then the final step is recovery and that really is what are the pieces that we need to have in place to help our community return to normal and into routine is really the focus of that piece and it, some of the examples of things that you'll see in recovery stages you know are mental health supports that might need to be ongoing during the response stage we have mental health report supports in place but those are really to triage and to um, take care of the immediate emergent needs but when you talk about recovery you're talking about the long-term impacts so um, and we also look at how are we returning us to a normal routine environment that also looks at the impact um, economically, not just in terms of mental health, but it looks at the impact and the um, weight of the crisis on your resources in your system. So in any kind of crisis response, school safety is a shared responsibility. So now we're going to turn it over to me. Uh, good evening. Um, one of the main responsibilities of the school board, as you all know, is to adopt policies and make sure that policies are reviewed regularly. Um, we do review and update our policies to ensure compliance with state and federal laws. We also are members of the Virginia School Board Association Policy Services, so we receive regular updates to policies. And as you know, we're moving from numbered policies to lettered policies, working our way through each section as items come up. In reviewing the policies that relate to um, school safety and security there are six that are ready for the board to review actually many of these were updated most recently by the VSBA in May due to new laws including House Bill um, 1129 Senate Bill 600 regarding collaboration with the chief of law enforcement and having a um, resource officer in school crisis plans House Bill 741 that talks about the floor plans of school buildings being available to police but then not available to others and House Bill 87, 873 with the SRO's inclusion on threat assessment teams. So the policies that are in front of you right now are six policies that do relate to um, school safety and security that are ready to go for first reading at the board's next regular meeting. Um, frankly, in reviewing these policies, the numbered policies are fairly up to date and will not result in a change to many of our practices, but it is important that we do review them regularly and make sure that we have the processes in place to support um, our schools and be there for our students. And I believe we're handing it back to Kristen. No, we're passing it over to Brian. At each school, the administrators are located adjacent to the front door. This provides them with visibility into who is coming and going into their buildings and allows them to quickly be available should a situation arise at the front door. FCCPS is unique and we have Securitas monitoring all the front entrances of our schools. With the extensive athletic events and community use, Securitas is also used at the secondary campus throughout the evening. As we have renovated our schools, we have included secure vestibules in the design. When visitors enter Jesse Thackeray Preschool, Mount Daniel, Mary Ellen Henderson, and Meridian, visitors check in with Securitas inside the vestibule and before they have access to the school and the office. At Oak Street, visitors enter into the front office where they are screened prior to entering the actual school. We will be using state funding to update the entrance to Oak Street to make the vestibule secure and incorporate American with Disabilities Act access on the Oak Street side. Staff at FCCPS receive an 
an ID badge that allows them to enter our exterior doors. By using badges instead of keys, we are much able to control who enters through each door. This allows us to deactivate lost badges, whereas with lost keys, it's impossible to know who could potentially have access. It allows us to remove access without needing to obtain a key back from the employee. FCCPS has worked extensively to improve security by adding exter external security cameras and enhancing lighting at all the exterior of our buildings. The external lights are dusk to, on dusk to dawn timers. FCCP alarms are monitored 24-7 by an external company who will dispatch police and or EMS if needed. The alarm monitoring company also alerts FCCPS staff who can immediately address the situation. This summer, FCCPS implemented a new schedule for maintenance staff to check all exterior doors each week. This will ensure that the issues with the door closures are identified and addressed immediately. Secure TOS and cameras are monitoring the entrances to all of our schools. At the secondary campus, there are four secure TOS staff, which allows them to monitor the main entrances to both schools and to monitor the exterior of the campus, including checking to be sure that all exterior doors are closed. All schools have security cameras that monitor the interiors of the school in addition to the exterior. When visitors, including parents, check in at schools, they are screened using the lobby guard system. This checks to be sure that they are not identified as someone who should or may not have access to our school sites. The system also prints an identification badge so staff and students know that the person is cleared to be inside the building. All classroom doors in FCCPS lock. In addition to the administrators having the master key, each school has a location where police have access to the building master that will open any locked doors. In the event of a situation, classroom doors have the ability to block the window into the room. These range from window blinds to window coverings that can be secured over the window. FCCPS is in the process of completing and distributing new emergency kits to each classroom. The previous kits had instructions for staff, but the new bags will include emergency materials, including a stop the bleed kit. Throughout the school year, staff and students practice these emergency responses. The most practiced drill is a fire drill. Exiting the building safely is critical to many emergency situations. Tornado drills also occur each once a year when students practice going into a safe space away from windows to shelter in place. Earthquake drills also happen once a year and are similar to the tornado drill. FCC has approached lockdown drills differently at the secondary level as compared to preschool and elementary based on the students' developmental levels. At the elementary level, the student drills are how to safely exit the building. At the secondary level, we have drilled on both how to exit safely and how to remain inside of a locked classroom. FCCPS worked with police to develop training for staff called the first 12 minutes. This training combined with the principles of ALICE used for emergency situations like an active shooter with stop the bleed training. Teachers are required to have CPR certification for their teacher licenses. In prior years, new staff watched a video of the first 12 minute training and returning staff reviewed a handout of the components. Starting this year with the leadership from the secondary campus, we are changing the language to be simpler and will return to an in-person training for all staff. 
This year, the secondary campus began doing drills for avoid, deny, and defend. These drills were done with the support of the police who provided inputs, on-site evaluation of drills, and participated in an after-drill debrief. Avoid means exit the building if it's safe to do so. This is the preferred option if the location of the incident is known. Deny is to hide or barricade in the locked classroom, which is done when it is not safe to exit the building. Lastly, defend is to confront the attacker if they enter the classroom. The instructions given are to use items in the classroom to deter the attacker. The police have provided input on all drills and participate in after drill debriefs. Even for fire drills, the police are often on site to provide guidance and input. Police and fire respond to emergencies at all of our schools. They are notified through both our alarm system and through calls to 911. To improve our emergency response, the police participate with us in incident debrief where we look at what worked well and what we need to improve on. In June, the police, myself, and the principals from the preschool and elementary school conducted a building safety audit at each site to identify opportunities to improve on. This year, the police had not had a school resource officer on site. The prior SRO was promoted and the general government will be filling the position for next school year. While the SRO has an office in the secondary campus, they do support all schools. Each school has a public address system that allows the principal or other office staff to make announcements that can be heard by all students and staff. These messages can also be broadcast to a specific classroom. FCCPS operates a radio system for schools and transportation. These radios work in schools and on buses with multiple channels for communication, and the walkie-talkies have been programmed to use through the repeaters for a broader signal range. One of the great things that we have learned from the vice president visit was Signal. It's a third-party secure messaging system that will be used by school leaders to communicate instead of text. And I am not exactly sure on who it goes to. It's me. Mr. John Brett. From internal to external communications, and we'll be continuing to utilize our current communication platform that we've successfully deployed for the last three years called Aptigy, which we use to send emergency communication, actually all of our communications, but in emergency communications, we're able to send to all of our websites, all of our social media channels, staff and parent email, SMS, text messages, robocalls, and send it all simultaneously. It's been just amazing. Working with Dang Nguyen and Steve Knight this morning, we had our first rollout call on a new exciting community engagement platform you'll be hearing a lot more about later called ClassTag. But for this presentation, let me just say that it's somewhat similar to Aptigy, but has the additional benefit of not one-way communication, but two-way communications in over 100 languages. It is a device interoperable, meaning the user can decide how he wants to receive the message. We don't say you're going to get a text message or you're going to get an email. You decide how you want to get it. We believe when rolled out, this is also going to be an excellent tool for the God forbid process of reunification during and following an emergency, as we'll be able to communicate out and either a parent or a student would be able to tell us if they are safe and we can immediately determine who we haven't heard from. We'll also continue using Schoology for mass notification for students and teachers, it's what they're used to, and email and SMS for uh, non-certified staff who don't have access to Schoology. 
And of course, our friends at the city will help share our information as we are glad to help share theirs. So our next component that we wanted to talk to you about are mental health supports. And we've broken this into three components. What are the mental health supports that we have for our students? What are the mental health supports that we have for our, our staff? And what do we have in place for families? So when we talk about mental health supports um, for our students, we really look at a preventative model. That's really what we're, what we're trying to do is prevent some of these um, crises from happening. And so we have developed a um, framework for social emotional learning and behavior supports and it's built very similarly to our MTSS model for academics where we have tier one supports, tier two and tier three supports. So things that we do for everybody, things that we do for some and things that we do for a few. And our, uh, you know, the all of the um, credit for the work that occurs for our students really goes to our school counselors, our school psychologists, our social workers who really are there on the ground every single day providing individual and group counseling sessions to our students. We've also been able to leverage some of our community resources. We now have access to Healthy Minds Fairfax, which is a program where when we see students who have those more moderate levels of need, we can refer them to Healthy Minds Fairfax. They will provide um, 10 free sessions, counseling sessions for, for either an individual student or they can choose to do it as a family and they will do a pre and post assessment and if the family or the student needs additional um, supports then those are in place. Then for our more intensive needs um, students one of the big pieces that we have is a very strong relationship with the community services board and we are able to access the um, CSA funds for students who have intensive needs here in our community. Then when we do have issues of concern, we have a very strong threat assessment process that really is led by our school counselors, our psychologists, and our social workers. And then we are also utilizing the K-12 survey data to look at what is it that we need to address more deeply and to help us clarify you know, what our students really need. The next piece are what are the supports that we have in place for our employees. One of the biggest pieces that we have is access to our employee assistance provider who gives a, an um, amazing array of services, but one of the most important that they provide um, in terms of mental health are the ability to connect our employees with a mental health professional for personalized support. And that's really important when we have um, folks who are in emotional distress and they're confidential. And these sessions um, can also be made available for any impacted household members as well. The other um, piece that we have in support for our employees is that we have very strong positive messaging coming from our amazing building leaders and from our superintendent that really is focused on that caring message and getting us through this together because we are a caring community and we are better together. The other piece is sharing of local and community and national uh, resources for support with mental health. 
and I think that's really important. We place those on our web. We put them in our, they were, you know, in our weekly newsletters that went out. Our schools share them. And then whenever there is a critical incident, we have um, specific resources that are provided to our staff about how to talk to students about violence. And then um, finally, the another great piece that we implemented this year, thanks to the Ed Foundation and Dr. Noonan's work are the wellness days for staff across the division. And then finally, what are the resources that we have for um, supporting mental health efforts with parents? Uh, a big piece are our trainings that we provide and we, we do a summer series. We have sessions that go on through the year. And again, messaging to our parents from our building leaders and from our superintendent. Again, to promote that we are a community of care and we're all responsible um, for each other. And then again, we share any type of national and local resources that would be beneficial to parents. And those are always on our website. And we're continuing um, with our youth mental health first aid training. We just finished a, a big round of getting another group of folks trained in that model, which is um, has been very beneficial. And then we also have our hashtag handle with care. And that really, um, I think, has been something that um, folks have appreciated. The um, final mental health piece that I would like to speak more specifically about, and I think this dress addresses some of the concerns when you look at who are the, who are, what is the profile of, of some of the school shooters that we've seen. Unfortunately, there are some commonalities that we see as we look at them. and. One of the ways that we really screen for kids who need those more intensive supports is through our threat assessment process. And I did want to share a little bit about that process with you. And so anytime that we receive any kind of information that there is a threat to a student by themselves, so it's threat of, uh, threat of harm to themselves or threat of harm to others through violence, um, we assess and intervene immediately. So when we look at conducting a threat assessment, we're looking for intent and means. Those are the two pieces that we really are looking for. Is it that, you know, this kid just said this thing, you know, because they were frustrated and angry and they really don't have a plan, they don't have access to any kind of resources. When we see those types of students, we intervene with them, we let their parents know, and we really help them work through whatever it is, the frustration or the anger that's at the source of that. But that's more of a transient issue. That's not something that's gonna be substantial. When we look at what is a substantial threat to you know, a student to themselves or to the to others, what we're looking for there again is serious intent to harm other people, a plan, and we're also looking at means. We're also looking at do they have access to weapons at home? Those are the kinds of questions that we ask in our threat assessment, especially when we're looking at threats to others. And then um, 
our threat assessments are only conducted by trained staff. So we do have uh, some administrators who are trained and able to administer a um, threat assessment. Our school counselors, social workers, and our psychologists primarily do those. Sometimes we will bring in our public health nurse if needed when we have a threat assessment. The other piece that I'm um, really proud of that we were able to do this past year is be able to differentiate our threat assessments based on developmental needs for students. So our elementary um, team got together um, last, um, last year and they analyzed the threat assessment that our secondary programs used and that really was the same threat assessment that they used at the elementary level. It wasn't developmentally appropriate. So that team of the social workers, the counselors, the behavior specialists, and the school psychologists created a more developmentally appropriate threat assessment that we utilize in our elementary schools. Covers all the same pieces, built on the same model, but the questions are more developmentally appropriate. So I wanted to spend some time talking about those because I think those are important mental health pieces when we talk about prevention, we talk about mitigation, we talk about response, and especially recovery. And I get to bring us home with a couple of uh, notes specifically around what we learned from the alarm that occurred at Meridian High School. But before we do that, I, I want to just take a second and say thank you to the team um, I hope one of the things that you, you've heard through this is that we are looking at safety and security through a policy lens. We are looking at safety and security through an internal um, safety measures, uh, whether it's mental health, whether it's um, internal structures, physical structures that are set up, external structures that are set up through high quality communication. Um, and, and a couple other things that I want to say that are sort of unspoken, but I think are worthy of note. Um, and I don't suggest in any way that Falls Church City Public Schools is immune to anything bad that can happen. We are no different um, in terms of the threat capacity to us as others. But one of the things that we do have going for us in all of this is that um, we and I say this also as a parent of, of a student in the school system, is we are, and I've worked in six different school divisions from really small, like we are, to really huge, like in Fairfax, to inner city and urban. We're one of the most um, accepting school divisions I've ever seen in my life in terms of accepting kids for who they are. And oftentimes when, when Ms. Sharp talks about the profile of the the, uh, the actors in some of these really terrible um, tragedies, they are marginalized students that don't feel that they've been accepted by their community, may have some mental health issues, and may experience some other acting out behaviors. And, and fortunately, we, we have a community here that's extremely um, accepting of all. We're all so small, we're relational, we know our kids by name and by need, and I think that in many ways that gives us an opportunity to um, to, to stay close, you know, and, and be relational and know our kids. So let me, let me talk about what went well and um, where some of the challenges were. Um, obviously, uh, about a month ago, we had perhaps one of the most unfortunate um, false alarms that possibly could happen. It's one thing to have a false alarm for a tornado, a false alarm for um, a fire drill, but, or a fire, but to do a false alarm for an active shooter is probably one of the hardest um, probably to ever have to, to deal with uh, from a variety of perspectives. 
um, emotional trauma um, for our community, for our students, for our staff. But also, it exposed some things for us that gave us an opportunity to do some reflection. But it also gave us a chance to think about what we did well. And I, and I look at Michael on our, our screen here as our student on the school board. And, and the first thing that I, I would say about what went well was that all of our staff and all of our students did exactly in the moment what they had been trained to do from the very beginnings of doing all of these drills that we had been doing. Students locked down in their classrooms. They barricaded themselves. Um, we didn't have any communication in the building that would tell kids who to get out or who to get out and when. Um, but for those that were sheltering in place, they did an extremely um, effective and, and smart job and stayed calm all the way through. Along with our school administrators, um, I had, I, I, I would say I had the opportunity. I don't think that's a good way to say it. I was, I was on campus two minutes into um, what was happening and I saw an administration that was extremely calm and followed all the protocols that were in place. Our emergency systems at the high school that we had planned for over the last five years worked effectively and efficiently. Um, and our staff made sure that not only are, were our students safe that weren't on campus, but they actually went out off campus uh, and met with them um, and, uh, and helped bring them back, including our own uh, legal counsel who met a group of students at Giant and walked them back in a big, large sort of walking school bus. Um, the next is that our police um, were, were incredibly responsive with their um, process and they were swift and, and intense, which is the exact um, response that you want to have in a crisis circumstance. But we did, uh, nonetheless, face some challenges. Um, we, we, one, now that we are a secondary school, um, we didn't approach this response or this crisis as a campus. Rather, we approached it as the Meridian lockdown um, as opposed to the secondary lockdown. That's important um, because, as everybody in here knows, those two buildings are now connected and really needed to be need to be treated as one campus going forward. So that was a good lesson for us. A next, a next learning for us that connects to that is the communications that were happening. Um, they're called the Bogans. Um, and the Bogans are the, the systems that do the intercom across the schools. Um, if you're on the Bogan at Meridian, it speaks to Meridian classrooms. And if you're on the Bogan at Henderson, it speaks to the Henderson classrooms. But there isn't the Bogans don't talk to each other. So it's really important for us that we need to have a system that we can communicate with everybody on that single campus at one time so everybody's aware of what's happening in real time. Um, in, our, in our debrief um, with the chief of police, with the safety and security staff, <clears throat> um, with our schools and with others from central office, some of the other things that we learned were that um, even on the, on the police department side, there were some things that need to be refined. Um, for example, some of our plain clothes officers didn't don their vests uh, as they went into the building. And unfortunately, um, at least one of them was, uh, had their picture taken entering the building with a high capacity, high power rifle, not in a uniform and not with a vest on that signified that they were with the Falls Church City Police. Um, that is something that Chief Gavin is taking um, into her work, and we appreciate her. Um, incident command is something that um, you may be familiar with, you may not. Um, and, and that is like in a crisis situation, who's in charge? 
And it doesn't have to be the principal. It doesn't have to be the superintendent. It can be anybody, but it has to be someone. And someone has to be designated as the person who's going to be in charge of the incident command on a site, whether it's at Oak Street, Meridian, Henderson, um, JTP, or Mount Daniel, um, that will then coordinate with not only um, the schools, but with the police and with central office. Um, because what we found in that moment was there wasn't a clear understanding of who was in charge from the police department side or the school side while we were in that moment. And as a consequence, some of the communications got a little jumbled between um, the schools and central office. None of the information that we shared publicly was inaccurate, <clears throat> with the exception of the badge actually getting grabbed by somebody or not being grabbed. Um, but the, the point of that is that we need to have better processes in place in planning to make sure that we have one single point of access uh, for command. And then the last is, um, you know, accessing the, the lockdown system. Um, we have um, at all of our buildings a variety of different ways that we lock them down um, and making sure that we have the right people that know the appropriate processes for locking down a building is really important. Um, and that, that that signifies a significant amount of power. Um, and so, for example, at Meridian, when someone um, hit the system to lock it down, um, that was because we didn't have good, strong structures in place to secure um, the lockdown, uh, the, the lockdown um, trigger. Probably not the right word to use. Um, so, uh, so moving on from there. Um, some things that we know are immediate next steps for us. Um, and the first is, <clears throat> you know, enhancing training for all of our staff. Um, and that includes substitutes. I've had a really nice opportunity um, over the last several months to work with a couple of our substitutes here in the system to hear how was your onboarding, how were your experiences here, did you get the training you needed. And to a person, all of them said that they get, they get a fair amount of training. Um, they even get told what to do in a crisis situation, and it's part of their packet. But in a crisis situation, to have to flip through a packet to figure out what do I do now um, can be complicated. So I think that we need to um, continue to work with, and we will continue to work with our staff, including our substitutes on training, um, to ensure that everybody smoothly knows what to do. Um, continued coordination of communications, and as, as Mr. Brett suggested tonight, we have a number of really good tools at our disposal, from the class tag app that's coming out to our AptoG programs and the like. Um, but coordinating communications between the central office and the schools and the police, um, coordinating those commands, coordinating um, messaging systems, coordinating um, uh, overhead sound and the like is going to be really important. Um, we are offering some parent information sessions in the coming year um, that will talk more about what we do with respect to community um, incidences or, or school incidences, if you will, and those will be, so be on the lookout for those. Um, we're going to continue to work with the Falls Church City Police, <clears throat> not only on our drills, um, but also engaging in tabletop exercises so that we can, in the moment, think through what would we do in this particular crisis situation. Um, we need to do some facility updates that was mentioned earlier. We're very excited that currently it looks like in the governor's budget that may be signed. There may be some capital funding available uh, for that work at Oak Street to go ahead and do the work around the security vestibule. In the meantime, um, just as a reminder, it may not be a secure vestibule with a 
Securitas person in the vestibule, but there is a vestibule you walk into before you actually come into the building. So um, we can, in those circumstances, perhaps stop somebody before they even come in. Um, as mentioned, um, a, a notion we learned from um, not just the Secret Service, but from other organizers using Signal um, is a really great way to communicate. And then see something, say something is, um, and, and I don't want it to be an overused expression because it's really important. And frankly, <clears throat> um, over the last five years that I've been here, it has worked incredibly well. Um, we don't advertise these things. We don't talk about them often. But we've had a number of incidences where we've done really significant threat assessments associated with kids making threats against our schools. In each of those cases, those were brought to us by other students who either saw something on someone's social media, um, saw something um, on, in writing or in drawings, um, perhaps um, a comment was heard that was shared with administrators. But in each and every one of those experiences, it was another student that brought that to us. <clears throat> and I think that that speaks to that relational component that I was speaking of earlier. Um, we are working on a Mark to Safe process. Um, as was indicated earlier, um, ADD is the new um, sort of terminology. Um, you know, you want to, uh, and, and suddenly the acronym escapes me, but it's uh, avoid, avoid, deny, deny Defend. defend. Uh, yeah, avoid, defy, uh, yeah, defy, defend. And if there is a case where you're able to avoid, there, there's not a reunification site. It's get out. Go wherever you can go and be safe. So with our younger kids, um, and even our older kids, we need to know where they are, right? And, and we, we know that if they're not in the building, they're safe. So we are working on a system where students will be able to mark themselves as safe <clears throat> when they get to a place uh, and that will also be done through the class tag app, I believe, um, for us to, to be able to work with students on how to do that. And then lastly, it was mentioned, um, the lockdown supplies in each of the classrooms. And it, it was surprising to me, <clears throat> frankly, as a leader, when we went through the training four years ago for the first time, and we had not only stopped the bleed kits in our classes, which are tourniquets, essentially, but we were also given advice on how to um, close a wound in the thoracic area and how important it is to do that or um, to take care of, of people that are that are bleeding um, and so those supplies and that training has happened in the City of Falls Church Schools and we'll continue to do that so Peter, um, Peter, I, uh, yeah. you mentioned something about the Oak Street festival yes to be able can uh, so if we get the funds, what, it sounded like there was two different options, but they sounded the same. What was the difference between the two different options? So, so the, first, the, the first option is a stopgap option, and that is that when you walk in the doors currently, there is an area where you're, you, you have to open another door to go into the office, or you have to open a door to go into the school itself. There is an opportunity for us to lock those doors down. Um, or find ways to lock those doors down so if we see a threat approaching, <clears throat> that person wouldn't be able to make it out of that square, essentially. But the ultimate option, which we're most excited about, and uh, is, is use, using some of the funding that we're going to get through the governor's budget um, to pay for some architectural changes to the front of Oak Street that will allow us actually to have a secure vestibule with Securitas sitting in the vestibule. 
um, who can also check people in at that secure vestibule before they even get into the building. Because right now, Securitas at Oak Street sits actually inside the office. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, so again, just to kind of put a bow on it, um, tonight I, I, I think my hope is that you heard we have a, a pretty hard, hard buildings. We have the hardening of buildings and we have um, significant systems that are in place uh, from, a, from central office all the way down to classrooms. We have policies that are coming to you for review that will also enhance our safety and security. We have significant mental health capacity in our division because of the work that you all have done to help us with budgetary items to get more social workers and psychologists in our buildings, school counselors. <clears throat> um, and we also have really great relationships with our teachers and with our kids. So uh, again, we can never be fool foolproof. We, we'll never get to a point where we can stop an intruder completely. My, my hope is, one, that we can prevent, which is the first in that stage that Ms. Sharp was talking about tonight, before anything happens. And if there is a case where something happens, we can very quickly respond and, and um, mitigate that threat as quickly as possible. And through the systems that we have in place, I'm confident that we can do that. So with that, um, we would welcome any discussion, any questions that you might have, and I'll turn it over to the chair to recognize folks for, for questions and comments. Thank you, Dr. Noonan. Thank you to everyone for being here this evening. It was incredibly informative. Uh, does anyone want to kick us? Yes, Ms. Silverman. I have a couple questions um, uh, that Mr. Fowler had, had uh, uh, discussed a little bit, and I just have some follow-up questions. I think you mentioned that the, uh, the older kids, because of maturity level, have lockdown drills. What do the elementary schools do in terms of being prepared for for any type of uh, dangerous situation, but I guess more of an intruder situation. So all the staff is trained in that situation. It's just, they do it like during a teacher work day. The staff will be prepared just because of the developmental age of the kid. So the, t the kids are always taught just stay in the classroom. But the staff know, like we train the staff outside of the kids being in the school. So let me, let me take that a step further. We, first of all, we do lockdown drills in all of our schools. We have to by law. Um, so even at the elementary schools, we are doing lockdown drills. So I want to be really clear about that. Um, and just to sort of add on to what Mr. Fowler was saying, <clears throat> the one thing we don't do at the elementary schools is train kids on how to barricade themselves in the classroom. Um, and the reason that we don't do that is it potentially could be traumatizing to our younger kids. So what we'll teach them to do is to just stay there, and, or we teach them how to exit the building. However, in a case where a classroom in a critical incident needed to be barricaded, all of the teachers have been trained on how to barricade. And at that point, they can engage their kids, but we would only engage kids in a barricade at our elementary schools in the event there was a critical incident. Okay, and then I uh, think that's a lot of clarification. Thank Ms. you. Ms. Silverman, can I, I'm oh, gonna do, yes, one, sorry. do one even better for uh, Dr. Noonan. Uh, before I became, was uh, on the school board, I was actually volunteering in the Mount Daniel Art Room and they did a active, of course they didn't call it an active shooter drill, but I thought it was beautifully handled by Ms. Garrett. Uh, she basically told the students, uh, you know, 
we're going to pretend that someone came because I had my orange visitor badge and we're going to pretend someone came into the building without an orange visitor badge. So we're going to just be quiet and hide. And she turned off the lights and everyone just sat quietly out of the, you know, there's a little window so they couldn't be seen in the window. And they stayed for 10 minutes. And then Mr. Kasich came, made sure the door was locked and, and that was it. So I thought it was, I thought it was very well done. And, you know, if God forbid that ever happened, they would have that, you know, that background and that, that context to know what to do. So yeah, no, this that's, was, this that's was years ago. This is pre-COVID, but I thought it was very well handled. Sure. No, for you to have a Mount Danieler, yes, it must have been. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> My second question, um, you had mentioned window coverings over doors. Are there window coverings over windows of the classrooms that are non-doors? Uh, at the high school, yes, the windows all have a covering. Uh, most of the classrooms in the elementary level don't have any windows to the classrooms except for, like exterior windows all have blinds. The door to, to the classroom has something to pull down to block that glass. So it's pretty much just Meridian that would have a glass wall and other in the other buildings, all the walls are non-see-through. Correct. For lack of a better term. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Tice. Um, I just wanted to first say thank you for this presentation. It was incredibly thorough, and I know it's something that I, among with others, have been asking for, and I really appreciate how thorough it was, and I am not surprised to hear what a good job we're doing. I pay close attention to every town and AFTNEA's um, recommendations, and I think we're, we're all of this presentation addressed what they would recommend, um, along with all the other experts that you've been consulting with. Um, but I did have a couple a couple questions. One on the on the lockdown drills, and maybe this is something we'll get into when we do our first reading of the policy, but um, they, the policy says that we give notice, and I very easily could have missed it, but I don't remember regular notice as a parent going out um, from the schools with, you know, with at least 24 hours notice. Is that something that I know we say in our policy that we're doing, but that we've done consistently? Um speaking not as the attorney but as a parent i know i've gotten those for my two children at oak street and mount daniel um so i can go back and make sure that we are following up with our principals to send those out but i do recall seeing some okay so we, I, that, we, we I should be we should be and if and if you aren't getting them we need to check on why and maybe i'm just missing it or it's you know my brain fog of of the last two years um and uh, I just wanted to, to follow up on that. And then also, I think this information is so helpful. Is there a way, I know you had said parent information sessions um, and one of the follow-up items, but is there something that, that something concise that could go out on an annual basis to parents that kind of summarizes some of this that would relieve some of the initial anxiety, especially for our families who are sort of new to the system or as things change? Yeah. I know best practices can Trisha, you want, look like you want to say something. I do know that our parent student information handbook does include information about all the safety drills that we have, how often that they're performed, and has links to our website. But we can go back to that and make sure that looking at it from the eyes of a new parent who hasn't been here before, that it makes sense and has the information parents would want. Right. I'm just, I, I know these things have to get updated as, as best practices or technology or whatever changes. It might just be something that we could roll into like our annual messaging in the beginning of the year, um, whether it's through morning announcements or some sort of newsletter or flyer or whatever. Um, it might be helpful um, 
And then my last question was just sort of a clarification on the SRO versus mm. the Securitas. And I don't, I'm not familiar with what the SRO role is from so, the... So let me take that one. Um, police versus our Securitas. Yeah, so Securitas is... Um, the, first of all, we're the only school division in um, Virginia that I'm aware of that has an external private security company that manages their security in their school. It's a layer of protection that no one else has. And it's something that we're really happy about um, and believe that in many ways it, it, it acts as a deterrent, um, knowing that there's a security person sitting in the front of the school. But they are a, an external private security contractor that's there to monitor people that come in, <clears throat> monitor the grounds, um, be our eyes and ears. If you hear, see something, say something. And in the event that there's a critical incident to help us through some of those critical incidences. Um, the SRO program's slightly different. Um, and that is, and, and to be perfectly honest, and it was mentioned tonight, and I don't know if you all caught it, but we did not have an SRO this year in our building. Um, some of you might be familiar with Officer Clark Gagnon. Um, Clark uh, was promoted to sergeant and um, as a consequence of that had to leave the job of our SRO and he had been a fixture in our community um, in schools for the last five years at least um, and and we miss him so Clark if you're watching you can always come back um, but he he's on the street and um, what I have heard from Mary Gavin just by the way is that she will fill that position by the start of the school year for the school resource officer but since Clark has been missing this year, we did open up all of our schools and offer spaces for the police if they wanted to come in and write reports or just um, have a place to sit and have a cup of coffee or whatever. And to a great extent, we had police in and out of our buildings for that purpose. You know, they were writing reports in some of our buildings. But the school resource officer is there to do essentially community policing. It's an opportunity for students to see the, the, the genesis of the program was for students to see that officers weren't, um, weren't terrible people, that they actually could build relationships within their community and in many ways serve as a resource uh, in their community. They are not school administrators. And let me be really clear about that. They still maintain their police um, standards with respect to search and seizure, with respect to um, probable cause um, and the like. Um, however, there are circumstances where a school administrator might be dealing with a circumstance that is uh, that could be legal and they would potentially go to the school resource officer and say, I think I have something I need to turn over to you. <clears throat> and, and to be honest, we have probably 10 to 15 things that happen in our middle school and high school each year that have to be turned over to the police. They just do because they're, they're illegal and many times kids will do them in the community but we find out about them and we have to turn them over. So it gives us an immediate resource in the building and somebody we have a relationship with that knows the kids that can help also do some navigation through the system. And in many cases, the school resource officer will serve in ways to provide diversion opportunities for kids or work with parents to say, if you do this, we can go this direction or that direction. Um, so the genesis, again, of the program was to, to do community policing um, in our schools. And we have one in the system that is based out of the high school at Meridian, but then serves all of the five schools. So if something happens at Mount Daniel or 
um, at Oak Street or JTP, that school resource officer will go over. <coughs> that being said, we also, again, have a really great relationship with the uh, Falls Church City Police. Um, and I can very quickly, um, we, and we had a couple incidences this year where I said, could you do an extra patrol or two at Oak Street this morning because there was a circumstance with a student that happened with a car that drove by and we want to make sure and they'll instantly send somebody over there and run extra p patrols if, if you will so does that clarify a little no, bit that's that's very helpful and okay. just as a, as a quick follow-up so I imagine that the SRO would be armed if they're a their officer they are armed right. um, and in in the SRO office there is also a gun safe and in that gun safe is a high caliber weapon that is there and designed to take out any threat right. that may but the present SRO, itself but the secure attacks are not they armed. are not armed right. that's correct okay thank you any other questions yes Ms. Silverman so just to clarify, we currently only have Securitas, but we are getting an, S an armed SRO next year? or what? We, we, are, we anticipate having a new one in September. We've had one for the last 15 years. This year, um, the, the city police were short-staffed. Um, they weren't able to fill behind Clark when he got promoted. So we uh, anticipate having a new SRO starting in September. Okay. Um, I just might have more questions about that in the future. We absolutely. Um, Chief Gavin and I are working on a revised, and along with Trish Minson and Carol McCostry from the city, a revised memorandum of understanding. And once that's completed, I'm happy to share it with you too. That also delineates what some of the duties of that officer are. Ms. Silverman, from personal experience, I can say that um, you know I think it depends who's in that position. Um, and Officer Gagnon, did I say it right? I know it's no, and, but yeah, but uh, he was very well liked by the students, and he really promoted a sense of community, and he knew everyone by name, and my kids loved him. So I think part of that too is, is as you said, use the word community. You know, policing. I think it, it's just someone that know an extra set of eyes and knows these kids, and oh, this person, this kid seems to be having an off day. I'm going to talk to. I mean. Just another, I thought it was, he was a great resource, so I'm really happy, and I hope that we can have, you know, that the person that is selected mm -hmm. for, to take his place will be, you know, as effective. I, I hope so, too, and, and um, I'll also say for the, the good of the board and for the community, um, one, of the, one of the things that Chief Gavin has tried to develop is a, is a culture of care um, within a police department that's remarkably different, I think, than other police departments that I've, I've experienced. Um, and then any um, additional trainings that we do, we also offer to the police. So for example, um, three years ago, we did a Saturday session on um, race, ethnicity, and microaggressions. Um, and our school resource officer came to that. So they're participating in a lot of our trainings as well. Um, and, and, and that's important to me um, because we also know that one of the one of the concerns that communities have about having school resource officers in buildings are, um, are potential um, issues with respect to um, inappropriately targeting certain students of color in particular. And so it's very important to us that our, our resource officer or anyone in our building is um, trained appropriately. 
And Dr. Noonan, I would like to also add one of the other concerns sometimes that you have when you have a school resource officer is how the police intervene in a mental health crisis. And um, Clark was amazing and he came to the youth mental health first aid session and is also was certified in that. And so I hope whoever, you know, the next person is um, can do that as well. That's a great point. Uh, I, I'll just throw in uh, two comments. One, I guess this is for Ms. Michael, because you probably do the contract with Securitas. I just wanted to say that I have been impressed with all of those staff members at every school, and especially that there's not a lot of turnover. You know, a lot of these folks have been here, um, Mr. Bryan at Mount Daniel, um, you know, they've been here, James at, at Meridian, for, for several years now, and I think that just it makes it even more safe because they know the they know faces who have been around and they know pe people who may not have been around and, and uh, so I think it just not having that turnover and then also having people in those positions that are friendly and care about the kids and parents it just so just kudos to uh, you know I, I'm sure you're the one doing that contract so um, and Miss Sharp and whoever's in, responsible for that but I, I would also add if you ever want to see maybe the most beautiful site ever it's the last day at Mount Daniel because yeah. you go to the last day at Mount Daniel and Mr. Brian, who is this huge, you know, it's not real tall, but he's, you know, he works out full time and he just starts crying. <laughs> the kids are going, these are my second graders that are leaving me. And it's just such an awesome thing to see. And, and I, you said James and we only know him by ship. Yeah. Um, but ship is ship's amazing too. Well, and and just to one more, not to belabor the point, but there I was at a school event and I forgot my school. I forgot. I just left everything in the car, and the um, security guard um, at the front desk. He was doing what he was supposed to do, saying you don't have identification. And thank goodness James came and he's like, I know I've known this person for years. She's on the school board. But my point being is that this. The one security guard was taking his up, but also someone who had been around for a couple years knew who I was. So anyway, the other point I would just wanted to bring up with, with um, Dr. Noonan, with the parent information sessions, one thing that we didn't touch on tonight is just putting some of the responsibility back on our parents who own guns. Um, and so one of the things, and I know that I think you actually or someone told me that the gun ownership in Falls Church City is quite a bit higher than I think people would, would realize. And, um, you know, my understanding is that even beyond active shooters, that one of the leading causes of teenage suicide is unsecured guns in the home. And so I guess I would just put also some of that back on the parents and, you know, when during these information sessions, just really emphasizing make sure that your guns and your homes are secure so that if someone is in a mental health crisis, they can't access that gun. I think that's absolutely right. And, and you, you know, I, I was the one that mentioned it to you and it was out of a conversation that I had um, with Moms Demand Action and also with the Chief of Police um, suggesting that the gun ownership here in the city of Falls Church is actually really high. A lot of it has to do with federal law enforcement and the like, but there are still a lot of gun owners. Um, and the important, and, and I'm not suggesting that federal law enforcement doesn't take care of their guns, because I think they do, and they're, they're trained in that. But um, I would just say that I think it's really important that um, gun owners do lock them up and, and make sure they um, are able to. And if, and if you need help finding a way to get your guns locked, locked up, um, you know, if you want to reach out to us, we can connect you with the police department or whomever to help you get the appropriate um, gun storage. Great, thank you. On that point, can I ask one more question? Mm -hmm. um, 
I know you had mentioned you were you were in conversation with Moms Demand and their um, their Be Smart program that addresses this from a from a very neutral you know bipartisan perspective. Is that something? I know I'm pretty sure that the PTA had hosted them years ago. Um, did that come up in your conversation with them about? It did actually. In that day, I put something out on social media about the Be Smart program. Um, but that's something that I'd, I'd like to continue to, to push because it is it's nonpartisan. It's it's just very factual. Just put just put your gun away. Well, it's really helpful yeah. information for and, and for non gun owners too. Um, I've participated in it for several times. I think it's really helpful, and I would encourage the PTAs or whoever else we can get it back in our schools um, for parent education. I think that's really valuable. And I, I know I mentioned before um, at, during our special meeting, just normalizing conversations about gun and just educating that the ownership is high and normalizing conversations when your kid is going somewhere um, to a new home. I just always volunteer what our plan is. I always ask what um, the situation is wherever my kids are going. And I think the more those conversations are out there, the easier they are. It doesn't need to be awkward. Thank you, Ms. Did I think when the PTAs do their joint meeting, that's a great topic for a joint meeting. Any other questions before we close this, this out? Okay, well, thank you all um, to everyone who presented tonight. We're sorry we kept you so late, but we really appreciate this information. Incredibly informative, and uh, I know that we're going to get this um, presentation out to the community um, in some way. I'm sure Mr. Brett will be on top of that, and I know that the community will be really um, happy to hear that all of these things and, and just so the community knows that that the school board was also briefed in closed session on some other security measures that um, for security reasons will be keep will stay in closed session but um, you know just again thank you to everyone who, who's here tonight and for all the great work you do to keep our kids safe thank you thank you chair downs can I uh, yes. officially yes. excuse yes. mr. Fowler because yes. he's got an early morning tomorrow <laughs> all right. thank you mr. Fowler thank you mr. The rest of the staff was like, oh, I don't get to go. <laughs> Actually, if you all want to go, too. Yeah, can. I don't know. I don't <laughs> it's up to you. We're going to talk about the calendar. So, Okay, moving on. Uh, we're going to talk about school calendar policy. We're at 4.02 now. Um, and we'll, um, I'll just kick this off. This is actually what we're going to be doing tonight is um, this is a policy. We've talked about this a couple times much more broadly. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to start, use this as a starting point. This is a policy that uh, Mr. Reidinger developed as just sort of a starting off point, a way to kick off this conversation. And uh, Mr. Reidinger, I welcome you to jump in at any point during this conversation and feel free to, to take the helm here and uh, lead the discussion. I, I'll say that Mr. Reininger's idea was so that every year it seems that we are reinventing the wheel with the school calendar. And so Mr. Reininger's idea was if we could put some sort of basic tenants, some, some basic pillars into this school calendar policy. Uh, and that way we wouldn't every year be trying to go through again what, what when different breaks are going to be and that sort of thing. And so that's what he has done with this um, policy in front of you. So I think what we'll do is we'll just start um, in, in the beginning. And, and Dr. Dimmick is not here tonight. She is uh, traveling and does not have um, access to Wi-Fi. And so um, I, you know, and I, I think the idea is that we would hope to have a, a final policy voted on and approved in August or September. So we, we've got a little bit of time. And so I don't want us to, um, you know, 
wrap up things too succinctly without um, Dr. Dimmick here because we want to make sure we have her input as well. But just basically as we go through this, just getting some, um, seeing where the consensus is on certain items. So uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Reinger starts with, and this is something that I know Dr. Dimmick and I brought up when we first joined the board, is, is looking at a two-year calendar. And so um, as you'll see here, Mr. Reinger start, just talks about the process of doing it in even numbered years and nicely lays out a general timeline and um, looking at um, when we would when uh, the superintendent would propose the calendars to us when we would look at them we'd discuss them in November and then finalize them in, in December um, so in this section number two if is any are there any comments about this yeah. yes yes yeah, so I, I, I really like the, um, the just the general the, the framework for the for the um, calendar development I suggest rather than making it in every two-year process that the every year you adopt the calendar for the subsequent. This is a super subsequent. I'm trying to think. You know, the, for the for the for the year afterwards, so that you would already have decided if well, it's supposed to be like this. This September, we will have already we will be in the 22-23 year, and if such a policy were in place, we would already have the calendar for the 23-24 year. And therefore, in twenty in September of twenty two, you would be all you would develop the calendar for the twenty four twenty five year, and then that would roll over the next year. So you're constantly working a year ahead of schedule. Yes, Ms. Silverman. I actually I like that because I was trying to think of a way um, to either make this October and November date earlier. But uh, Dr. Ortiz's recommendation actually kind of um, fixes the problem that I was foreseeing, which is, you know, I know it's still, you know, maybe giving people nine or ten months bef of notice before the next calendar year. But, it, you know, some people like to plan vacations, um, you know, even, you know, for their August vacation, you know, November can still be late to plan a vacation in August if you're trying to get a place that's difficult to, to get into. So um, Dr. Ortiz's proposal actually kind of remedies that issue um, or just making the October, November earlier in the year. Mr. Ranger, does that make sense to you? I think you're muted. Oh, maybe we have a technical delay. Hold on, hold on, Mr. Reidinger. Might be on our end. Okay, you want to try now? Oh. Hold on just a second. That's weird, because he was, we heard him before. All right, hang on, Mr. Reidinger, we're going to figure yes. this out. I think Michael, Michael can hear him, though. Cause yeah. Michael, you can hear him? Because Phil's cracking jokes and Michael's oh, laughing, okay. so. All right, so let me add um, sound to mine. I'll unmute here. And then you want to hand me that microphone? All right, Phil, can you try and talk now? Oh boy. 
Yeah, he's making making Michael laugh pretty good. Yeah. Mr. Ranger, you want to say something now? Try now? No? No. Well, it looks like he maybe went off and is going to come back on. Michael, can we try and hear you? Um, yeah. Uh, okay. You're working. We hear you. All right. We hear you. I was hearing Mr. Ranger well. Well, okay. <laughs> You'll need to tell us later what he was telling you that was making you laugh so hard. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. And we heard Michael, so we knew something was up. All right. Thank you, Mr. Reidinger. Okay. So, Mr. Ranger, going back to Dr. Ortiz's, did you understand what he was proposing? I, I would say I, I certainly have no objection to moving things up closer than the air. I think the question about whether the board wants to do um, – one calendar, you know, per year, or do it, you know, for two years, um, every other year is one for the board to consider. I don't, I don't feel there's a right answer there or a wrong answer there. Um, my sense before was that the board was interested in only doing the the calendar discussion and moving through it out, moving through it more quickly, um, you know, for do, do 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 two years at a time. But if the board wants to do one year at a time, I certainly have no objection to that. I don't have a strong opinion either way. Okay, thank you, Mr. Anger. Anyone else on this point? Yes. I would lean toward both Dr. Ortiz moving it up so we can plan and then doing two years. I think with Mr. Reitinger's proposal, we are limiting the number of options, and those options would only change if there's a significant change in the school board. Um, so it seems like a you know a calendar of two years at a time would be um, would be enough where there's not got, there not gonna, not going to be that many transitions or, ch or choices each year. That's just my opinion. Not strong, but where I'm at now. You know, we do, Ms. Silverman, we do, I, I will say that we are one of the first in this area to ever approve, you know, Fairfax in particular doesn't, I think, approve theirs till spring. Um, so, it, you know, I, I understand. So what your, your point is that, so let's say for this, this December, we were to approve the next two years. So your point is that for the next year, it doesn't give people a whole lot of planning time. Is that what you're saying? Yes, especially if, let's say, for example, we end up starting in uh, mid-August, mid to late August. Um, you know, oftentimes there's vacation time at the end of August that's easier to book than it is at the beginning of August, th those types of situations. Um, I understand we might be first in the area to set a calendar that doesn't mean it's it's where it should be. You know, we, we couldn't strive to do better. Yes, Ms. Tice. I don't have a strong opinion on whether we do one year or two years or where exactly, if it's September or November, but I think the the point of the policy is that we will already know when we're starting school. The policy will say we start one day, one week before Labor Day or two weeks before Labor Day or right after Labor Day. So in terms of summer vacation, that will already be established by the policy. Like it'll just be predictable every year and that's the advantage of the policy. So to me, whether we do the rest, the timing of the, I think the policy will also make the process smoother um, and faster. So if we want to do it every year, I don't think it will be as cumbersome, but I also have no problem doing the two-year proposed idea. Either one is fine. Okay. I think that's, uh, so that gives me enough to go on. I'll talk to Dr. Dimmick and then I'll, um, 
I'll type some some notes up. Okay, so let's uh, move on to section three here, calendar requirements. Uh, so we'll start. Sorry, I don't mean to put us back yes. on section two. Yeah. Section two B, um, the, the concept of this proposal I thought was to minimize the use of a committee. Is section B, two B, really focused on the staff committee to help identify where the work session, work days are? Is that the point of that committee? Um, it's not going to go back to the committee purpose before, which is what we were trying to solve. Right. Mr. Reinger, right. do you thoughts on that? Section 2B? Well, well certainly the, the rules would all be predetermined very much. And there would be, there'd be a lot less for a committee to do. But I, I, I imagined that even, you know, the, the committee that has been done has been mostly staff, but it's been involving parents um, and uh, some other folks as well. Uh, I imagine something much more simple, but that the superintendent, Dr. Noonan, right now um, might want to bring staff in to have some input on teacher work days and those sorts of things to sort of get a sense across all of the schools about um, where you know, within the within the parameters allowed by the policy breaks might take place. So I, I didn't imagine a big thing, but that the, the superintendent might might want in some cases to have a a, com a staff committee, and this simply gives him or her, in future cases, the flexibility to do that should he or she so choose. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mr. Reiner. It, to me, it's better to leave. It says may convene. You know, if the superintendent doesn't feel like it's necessary, then then he or she doesn't have to. Um, but I think you know, obviously, with those piece, those big. Um, pillars already already set in the policy there's not a whole lot to discuss but it could be teacher work days it could be professional development okay. that sort of thing okay okay everyone okay if we move on to section three okay so uh we'll start with with the doozy the first day of school uh and so everyone knows that foster safer forever started after labor day and then the law changed a couple years ago and so um i'll just I'll just throw it out there. I think that there are um, passionate feelings one way or the other. Uh, we, um, when that state law first changed, we went to two weeks before Labor Day. Uh, and then we've sort of, the compromise we've done for the past two years is one week before Labor Day. So what are some thoughts here? Yes, Dr. Ortiz. So first I'd like to, to thank all the community members that have sent in comments. Um, uh, Ms. Goodell has sent them to us all and we've taken a look and we've gotten I think similarly um, a range of opinions on when to start I think the key here though and this is something that's in the policy that this is an academic calendar meant to serve academic purposes do we know and this is for Dr. Noonan and his team I mean do we know anything with respect to our learners um, whether or not they're the younger or the older learners whether or not there's a benefit um, and not, you know, when you start school, I guess is probably kind of arbitrary, but the fact that the, the fact that there's only a four day week in that week, you know, whether or not that is fundamentally counterproductive for younger learners or not, because I, I think, you know, when the, the key consideration here is, you know, what's going to work out best for the students and the staff um, and allow parents and families to plan. Um, and so I think I'd like to, to make sure we have at least to the degree it's reasonable or relevant input on those kind of topics for these various decision points so so to answer your question um the first week and even two weeks of school with younger learners are focused on procedural routines um, focused on um, some prior knowledge 
understanding what students know, um, some assessment even, you know, with our younger learners, you might get a, a developmental reading assessment to kind of get a sense of where you are. Um, I think whether it's four days or five days doesn't actually make a difference, um, so long as they're full days. If it's a five-day week, it should be a half-day Wednesday. If it's a four-day week, it should be four full days. Okay, very good. Thank you. Yes, Ms. Tice. I'll go ahead and put myself in the camp of a passionate opinion here. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would just, I, I feel strongly that the best situation for our learners is actually to start as early in August as we could stomach it, which I think would probably be the two, the full two weeks before Labor Day. Um, and I know that like the initial transition to that is difficult because it makes for a tricky summer that the first year you do it, we've already been through that process once. Um, but um, I think giving our learners the most time before all their standardized tests in the spring is just incredibly advantageous um, and, and the most fair to them if we're setting them up we, we, for all of these assessments at the end of the school year. I don't know why we wouldn't give them the most time possible to um, get that learning done. Um, so I would say, you know, two weeks is, is probably the most, I would go even earlier, but I know that's too, too far for the community. So I'll stop at two weeks, but I, that would be my vote. Um, I do think I agree it is an academic calendar and that should be our primary motive. I do think there's an advantage there for the large percentage of our, I think there's a good percent, a good percentage of, uh, high schoolers who do, um, sports in the fall and they're already back August 1st. So that wouldn't be my primary motive, but I do think that's another advantage. Um, the families are already back in town August 1st, so they're already here. Um, we might as well get them learning while they're, while they're sporting, those of them that, um, that, that pertains to. And I think in terms of the, um, the, the shorter day, um, if we were to only do the one week, which I'm not advocating for, um, the one week before Labor Day, you're going to get different answers depending on who you, you ask. You know, I think um, families some can find that disruptive the first week. Some um, learners find it a relief. Some f learners find it confusing. Some teachers find it disruptive. Some teachers find it um, helpful. So um, I, I don't know that you can get an easy an easy answer on the on the learning part of a short a shorter week. But I do I just don't see the downside for the starting the two weeks before Labor Day also solves that you'd have a full five day week. And, and I don't disagree with you on the four-day versus five-day. I think the only difference I would suggest is that it's either going to be four days or four and a half days. That would just be for ele for elementary. For though. elementary, right? Yeah. 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 And I will say I'm even a fan of back in the day. It was a half day for the whole first week of um, kindergarten. Back in the day, that's something I, I you know I don't have a kindergartner. I don't have a dog in that fight. But I, I thought that was a really lovely ease in to school. But that's probably a conversation for another day. <laughs> yes, <silver>. or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in that easing in camp on that kindergarten thing, so maybe we keep that off the table. Um, I don't have as strong of feelings as Ms. Tice, although I do agree with a lot of her points on this issue. Um, I guess where my strong feelings come on the start date is either after Labor Day or two weeks before. I think having this four day on, four day off um, doesn't really. Get, get kids and families into the groove of school. So I would support either after Labor Day um, and still probably get out, you know, if, if it were a calendar that I drafted, still get out, you know, in the beginning of June um, or starting two weeks early. 
so just so the public is clear, what we're discussing is the state law says that if we start before Labor Day, we have to give um, that Friday of Labor Day and then Labor Day obviously off. So those are two weeks that you have four days. So that's what Ms. Silverman's referring to. However, if you started two weeks early, you would have a full week before you... Before You'd you have the full nine days, right. yes. Right. So I see either nine days or zero, right. not four, right. as, as a good option. Right. So that's that's a state law, That's and that's that's what we're talking about, the different days off in the beginning there. Uh, I will I will say, you know, I, I do appreciate everyone's uh, feedback on this, and I think uh, my colleagues and I will agree that on every topic, for every person who wants this, then another person wants the exact opposite. So um, I really enjoyed reading everything, but I think it's just made it clear to me that it's just, you know, we're going to do our best to listen to the community and, and also listen to the experts in the room, Dr. Noonan and, and teachers and staff, and, and do our best, but we know that it's not always going to make everyone happy. Uh, Mr. Reinger, I know that you have um, had some feelings about the start date over the years. Did you like to add anything to this conversation? Well, my, my feelings before stemmed more from my discussions with people in the community. And to be frank, you know, all of my kids are now out of Falls Church City Schools. And increasingly, the, you know, the, the, the people I know and interact with most regularly don't have kids in the schools. Um, I, I think there are other alternatives to getting um, kids additional days, including things like a shorter winter break. But, you know, I, I actually, at this point, don't have a strong feeling um, other than to say that I, I think if the board is leaning going towards starting two weeks before Labor Day, then as we bring a policy up for first reading, it's better if it says two weeks before Labor Day than one week, because then everybody in the community will be on notice that we're talking about starting two weeks before Labor Day. And you know, if there is super strong sentiment against that, um, it would be mobilized the, you know, as we consider the policy, as opposed to be a surprise later. So, you know, sort of like the city council um, always advertises the maximum available tax rate. Um, I, I think our, our our draft policy ought to advertise the maximum amount of time that we would want to start before Labor Day. That makes sense, and in a way to to float it out there to see see what kind of response we get from the public. That that does make sense. Mr. Mayor, and I will say to Ms. Tice's point, I, you know, I, I've myself, I've, uh, I've been an old schooler and, and always loved the after Labor Day. Um, but, you know, as someone who has, who has a child who plays fall sports, um, football in particular, and is here August 1, you know, the, the first football game this year is August 26. So it's the first home football game is before we actually start school. So it's just kind of odd that way, um, to, to your point, Ms. Tice, about the sports. Any other thoughts from anyone about um, the start date? Uh, yeah, I would just echo okay. quickly that I support the two weeks before. I also, for a variety of reasons, for our older learners as well as our younger learners, making sure they get into that groove, similar to Ms. Tyson, Ms. Silverman's mm -hmm. cycle on that. And, you know, it, it could be too, Mr. Ranger, that, you know, we've had two years of the one week before and it's been sort of a, a transition. You know, I think, I think it was, I think it was too quick when we went from after Labor Day to two weeks before, I think that really ripped off the Band-Aid. But I think now having two weeks of, of the one week before sort of eased the community out of that after Labor Day start. Uh, so I think 
Mr. Reiner brings up a good point. I think for the for the first reading of the policy, we'll say two weeks before Labor Day, so that we can get that out to the community and see if that there's any um, what the reaction to that is. Everyone feel comfortable with that? Okay. Okay. So the um, section B of this uh, fall break shall begin the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and end the Friday after Thanksgiving inclusive. I think that's pretty straightforward unless anyone has any thoughts on that. Nope. Okay. Uh, winter break shall last for two weeks and include both December 25th and January 1st. So um, this is something that I know over the years has, has changed back and forth. Um, I think I can't remember if it's this calendar, but I think I know since I've been on school board, we we sort of shaved off a day or two of that um, to try to, to finagle when we ended. So I know that we haven't always been a straight two weeks um, in recent time, but does anyone feel, I, I, I do understand that, my understanding from staff is that the staff really appreciate the two weeks off. Yes, Dr. Um, Ortiz. Just a couple of thoughts, one is that um, among the various opinions that we received from the community, um, there was m most agreement on a two-week winter break than on any of the other various parameters we could discuss. Um, I was trying to go through, you know, the various, I guess it would be seven different scenarios for when December 25th and January 1st fell. Um, you know, I think I would be okay saying like nominally two weeks or giving a little bit of flexibility depending on when those days fell so that if it needed to be 13 days or 15 days, you know, there would be latitude to actually accomplish that, you know. Um, but other than, other than that, a little bit of wiggle room, I think that the two week normal break makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yes, Ms. Tice. Uh, this is not something that I feel as passionately about, but of course I have an opinion. And I, I think the strongest sentiment was definitely from staff, teachers and staff, which I understand uh, wanting that two week break. I think it's really valuable um, time for them to regroup and be with families and rest before the rest of the school year. I totally get that. I do think the other side of that though is two weeks is really long for families who are not traveling, who don't have a parent who now has two weeks off at home, um, who don't have exciting plans, who don't, who can't afford camps, who um, there's just not a great situation at home. There's not a lot for the kids to do. I don't think it's necessarily the most equitable um, or fairest option for those families. So I don't, I, I, this is not a hill I'm going to die on, but I, I'm, I'm not as excited about the two weeks being a standard we have to hold ourselves to. I think giving at least some some wiggle room, maybe you know, maybe some years it makes sense depending on where the dates fall that it's 12 days or 13 days. Uh, I don't see the need to make it sure it's a full two weeks um, every year. Uh, I know that that would be disappointing to staff, but I do have to think about the other families who don't have the luxury of being home for two weeks off work. Thank you, Ms. Tice. So, um, given Ms. Tice's points, and, and I completely understand because I remember what it was like to have little kids and no plans and what, what the heck are we going to do? Um, I mean, I had the luxury of being a stay-at-home mom, but obviously many people don't. So, um, Mr. Ranger, do you have any thoughts on, on the, the length of winter break? Well, I, I, I've never been a, a pro two-week winter break person for the most part, but, you know, I... What I'm, <clears throat> what I'm most interested in is some degree of certainty. 
Um, and that's not going against um, Ms. Tice's point about uh, you know, maybe it could be uh, more in some cases and less in others. I just don't think we want to relitigate that every year. So if it's going to be, you know, my understanding was that the, the broad sentiment of the board was that it wanted two weeks, which is why I put the two weeks in the policy. Um, if that's not the case, if the board wants to in some cases have fewer, that, you know, it consider the scenarios and maybe have a, a somewhat straightforward um, approach for when winter break will be two weeks and when it will not be. Um, I think, you know, I actually think you can make the sort of the equity call more generally, though, and give people some degree of certainty. Either, you know, either it's worth having shorter than a two-week winter break or it's not. And so I would, I, I would, I would tend to pick a rule and go with it rather than give undue flexibility. But if you're going to give some flexibility, specify what the rules are to some extent. And I, I don't feel strongly one way or the other at this point. Okay. This, let me talk to also get Dr. Dimmick's thoughts on this too. And maybe I can um, work on some wording for this and see if there's, I, I understand, you know, the reason we are doing this policy is so that we're not reinventing the wheel every year. Um, I also understand Ms. Tice's, and, and as I said, I know that this past year or the year before I'm getting the years confused, I know that we shaved off, you know, one or two days to help us end on that Friday in June. Uh, so, uh, so th in that sense, the flexibility was, was helpful. So uh, let me work on that. I'll talk to Dr. Dimmick and I'll um, work on some wording and get that all out to you and get your feedback on that. Sure. I just want to um, ask a clarifying question, not for me, but for the board maybe to wrestle with. And and it's as you're developing this policy, and and it's it's I think it's important for well, I think it's important for C, D, and E particularly, and that is how important is aligning with surrounding jurisdictions. Um, and I throw that out there just as something to consider as you're talking about this. Um, Obviously, we won't know what everybody else is doing, but we're seeing the writing on the wall. Um, it's really clear that at least now jurisdictions are, other jurisdictions are observing all of the days that are in, in um, E, um, that all of the spring breaks align to the Easter holiday, that they're giving two weeks at winter break. Um, so I, I just want to throw that out there as you all are talking about your policy, I, I know that at least in the initial conversations, there was a lot of conversation amongst you about let's make sure as best we can to align to other other divisions. So right. I throw that out there for your discussion, not with me, but for no, you No, I all. understand. And, and Dr. Noon, am I, and I, I'm correct to say that the majority of our staff live outside Falls Church City? Correct. Okay. So I think, you know, there is, and I know we've had this discussion, this same group publicly many times that, you know, it, it, we don't always want to be having to, to worry about following, but, but I will say that we can, um, you know, bearing in mind the staff piece of this and that we don't want to create child care issues for them. You know, I think your point is great, Ms. Ties, about child care issues um, for parents with the two week break. And then we also have child care issues, whereas, you know, if, if we're given, you know, we want teachers to be in the classroom on, on December 22nd and Fairfax is out and Arlington is out and they had their kids are home. So I think that's another piece of it is, is just in terms of our, of our staff and, and being 
So, you know, just keeping that in mind. I'm not saying that I don't think we have, but I think it is a good piece. Yes, Ms. Silverman. I forget who mentioned it at a, a work session, uh, maybe the last work session when we discussed this. Um, if we are drafting a policy, I don't know if alignment is as much of a priority anymore. If we are drafting this policy so that we don't have to revisit this issue every year, um, and, and to um, respectfully disagree with Dr. Noonan, I think that other districts, other jurisdictions, aren't really solid in what they're doing. We saw Fairfax decouple spring break with, East, with uh, Easter, and now they're back to coupling. We saw Fairfax taking, uh, staying in school on the religious holidays, now they're taking off. Are they gonna go back the other way? We don't know, and if we're drafting a policy, um, I don't. How, I don't know how we can foreshadow into the future in order to align in any way. Um, I think the policy is student focused and what's best for our students um, first and foremost. And, and I said they were solid for next year. I, solid for said. next year. Yes. That's Thank you, Doctor. Okay. Yes. Um, and that's that is true. They well, they are solid as for now for next year. We don't. Um, Fairfax is also known to change, so we don't know. And I, I agree with that, Ms. Silverman. I do think, though, that we need to keep the staff in mind as well, um, because this affects them as well and and um, their lives. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, yes, yeah, a couple a couple of points. Was, yeah, Mr. Reitinger noted that there's a choice to be made here, and one is that if we go with a policy, then you know we're basically giving up guarantees of alignment. You know, whether or not alignment actually occurs is going to be, to a certain extent, a little bit of serendipity. Um, I would say once we have something for first reading, I think as a board, as board members, you know, we can take it upon ourselves to um, meet with other boards and say, hey, listen, this is what we're, we're working on. Because it would be one thing if Fairfax had a policy and we could just say, well, we agree with points A, B, C, and D, but not E, and then we'll just adopt that. Um, but we don't have that from Fairfax. So, you know, we don't have any guidance that's really helpful from them. Um, with respect to, and then I think no matter what we do, we're going to end up with situations where we're going to have to figure out ways to, um, uh, from the standpoint of staff management, um, allow our staff to um, be able to, um, um, you know, work within the bounds of their own responsibilities as, as, as parents or, or caregivers. And um, that's gonna require some, you know, and, and you know, I think there's going to be implications, especially in the first few years that we're doing this, with respect to um, Dr. Noonan and his team in terms of managing the team and making sure the team has a, an adequate opportunities to take advantage of the breaks that they might have with their families. And that's just that's another, that's not necessarily a calendar policy issue. That's a somewhat different issue, but it's also related. So that's something that we should probably make sure to discuss as we're converging on a solution here. Thank you, Mr. Ortiz. Anything else for, yes, Ms. Tice. I'll just go ahead and say I agree with Ms. Silverman's com uh, comments. I think um, I, there's no question to me that the most relief we could offer um, our staff would be alignment, but I also just don't think that's available to us um, when we're setting a policy, unless our policy was to just follow Fairfax. Um, otherwise, I think we just set a policy that makes sense for us. and. And whether or not that aligns with Fairfax or, or, or wherever else. I mean, also our staff might majority live in Fairfax, but then there's Arlington, there's Alexandria, there's Loudoun, et cetera. There's, um, I, just, I just think that's, it's too difficult. I wish we had a regional calendar. That would make everything easier, but that doesn't seem available. Um, 
So if we're going to set a policy, I would just prefer to set it for us um, and not hope that um, that we can predict what other jurisdictions are going to do. Thank you, Ms. Tice. Anyone else on the winter break? Okay. Uh, so we so just for the record, I will um, talk with Dr. Dimmick, give her feedback, get her feedback on this, and. Um, and we'll either talk about having that two weeks in there or, as Mr. Reiger said, said if we are going to offer some flexibility, having some parameters in there. So I'll, I'll work on that and get Dr. Dimmick's feedback, and I'll follow up on that one. Uh, so now we're at D. Spring break shall be one week long and take place the week that best aligns with the – oh, I see. He's saying in this policy, Dr. Mr. Reiger is suggesting that best aligns at the end of the third quarter before Easter. So generally – um, Dr. Noon, is that right? That generally the end of the third, that's usually how it flows, right? That the end of the third generally or not? Uh, yeah, I would say generally. Sometimes Easter, yes, I would say generally. We yeah. we modify, oftentimes we'll put you know, 46 days in one quarter and 43 in another just to try to make things sort of match up. Okay, thank you. Any thoughts on this one? So if I but, might. But again, it uh, depends on how when you start school too. That's true. Yes, Mr. The, the brackets here were designed to show really two choices. Um, one is to always pick the week that um, is best aligns with the break between one quarter and another. And the other is to pick the week before Easter, um, which is what some of the surrounding jurisdictions done and what we've always done in the past. So um, those could be very similar. They could be different depending on where um, Easter tends to fall, um, and so you know the 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 breaking from Easter is the uh, is the more secular approach, and conceivably um, the best aligned with academic needs. But the breaking the week before Easter also has secular benefits in that it appears to be what will align most directly with surrounding jurisdictions if if the board wants to take that into account. So uh, that's really the sort of the choice I see here is between either always the week before Easter or always the week that best aligns with the semester break. And, and if I could just say, I, I think this one might need to be revisited after you make all of the other decisions. So you might want to make the decision, is it going to be two weeks or one week? Are you going to put in the policy that you're going to take all of these days as holidays or not take all of these holidays because of Easter, like it did this year, fell late? The end of the third quarter might be two weeks before Easter. It's just hard. It's hard to know. Um, so that may be something to consider. Thank you. That's great feedback, Dr. Noonan. So I, I have um, one. Um, I think there's an additional kind of option here, and that's kind of making it generically fixed. Um, so rather than aligned academically, and, and but generically fixed, me and I think this would kind of help once we make some of these other decisions to say the last full week of March or the first full week of April um, is spring break. Um, and therefore, it's always kind of calendar-wise very, very clear when that is. Um, you know, similar to, you know, we know when December 25th is, right? So we know when there's going to be a winter break. We know when Thanksgiving is. Similarly speaking, there's an opportunity here probably to say, you know, let's just fix spring break, um, you know, within the calendar. And if we have pretty set parameters for the other items, 
is going to generally fall where it falls, you know, academically as well. Um, so that's another option. And, 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 I, and I, let's just say I, I, I kind of, I, I see merits to like all the choices here, so I don't necessarily have a strong opinion. Um, I mean, I have my own opinion, but I don't have a strong opinion from the standpoint of the board. So, um, but I think I'd like to see that as another option to consider. Okay, so maybe what I'll do on this one is see, um, so Ms. Silverman, what would you, when you're looking at having a set um, time that aligns at the end of third quarter or having it bump up to Easter, do you have a thought on that preference? I have a question for Dr. Noonan. Um, do you, and I know that we can't really tell you, I'm trying to ask you to read the tea leaves here, but would you anticipate a Good Friday operational issue if we decoupled spring break from Easter and then we're open on Good Friday? Um, or do you, can you not even? I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think if we did, I, I can't answer that question. But I what understand. I but what I can say is if and, and and with some certainty, if spring break were decoupled from Easter, we would have a problem. I you know, one as, way or one as way much or as I either before or after. Agree in a secular <coughs> calendar. Mm -hmm. I also see just operational benefits to keeping it coupled with the holidays um, because of Easter and actually also because of Passover um, that which does encompass you know between those two how I, I so it's not as much it, it's more operationally how many people are going to be taking right um, you know how many teachers and staff would have to take off I also think as much as forming a policy doesn't take alignment into consideration, I do believe this is one opportunity that we can kind of roll the die here and think that alignment might occur if we keep it coupled with the holidays, with Easter and, and Passover. Um, you know, so while we don't, we can't foresee what other jurisdictions do, I think this might be one opportunity where we can hopefully guess that they will stay coupled. I think, and, and Dr. Nguyen, I don't mean to speak out of school, but I sort of my understanding from when we were at VSBA was, I thought I heard this, that um, when Fairfax decoupled it, it created so many headaches for all the surrounding school systems um, that I think there was a discussion among the superintendents, and I think that's why Fairfax has gone back. I, I, I was in Fairfax for 15 years. I've been in the region for 22 at this point. Fairfax is only decoupled from Easter once in that period of time, and it was the most disruptive week for all of the divisions in Northern Virginia because our, and I'll just use our teachers as the example, that live in Fairfax had no childcare coverage for that week. And so they took off, and we had a sub in classrooms for a week in, in some cases. And it was an operational issue. This is not a I'm not supporting a theocracy here. I'm, I'm simply suggesting that there are some operational issues when we when we don't have that week off, and and they have gone back to um, that Easter uh, week, and I suspect that's not going to change. That's helpful, Dr. Noonan. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Anyone else on this? Yeah, and I think it goes back to Dr. Noonan's advice about D and E, how they go together, D being spring break and E being 
a focus on the religious holidays, and I think we're about to get to E, I realize. We're just kind of building up to that. Um, I think the concern that I have is the concept that we are, that there might be an advocacy for um, a secular calendar, um, which means we would not honor some of the, the religious holidays that are listed in E, some of the newer holidays that have been, um, because of uh, secular reasons. Um, yet we would still keep uh, maintain the two holidays essentially um easter and 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 the christmas break um for obviously operational reasons but also i think it's hard for me to understand the logic that we're trying to argue for a secular calendar that's good for academics yet we're going to choose based on operations and i think we need to just be consistent to some degree about our logic um, around that. And, and that's where I know we're about to get to E, um, but that's where I'm wrestling right now. So I, I guess we can just get to E and let it flow. So, yeah. Okay. Well, any, before we get to E, anyone else for D? Yes. Ms. Tice. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I agree completely, um, that I, I'm really struggling because I feel pretty strongly about a secular calendar, but I also do understand that this, um, keeping spring break tied with Easter because that's by far the most likely thing for surrounding jurisdictions is the, is one opportunity for us to, you know, make sure we have some relief or some alignment. I'm wondering if there's even a way to, to phrase it. So it's very clearly an operational decision or putting in some sort of wording that explains that it's operational or gives, uh, an out if there's, um, you know, if Fairfax does go back and waffles back for whatever reason, I mean, they do have a new superintendent. I know, I know superintendent doesn't set the calendar, but I mean, who knows what they'll do. Um, if there was even some way we could make sure that the wording or the messaging makes it clear that it's operational, because it does make me really uncomfortable because I'm about, as we get to E, I'll show my cards, about to, to say that I strongly support a secular calendar, and then it makes me very uncomfortable to keep Easter with spring break, even though I understand the operational challenges. So I'm not sure from a wording perspective or if we can have some sort of clause that says we have the option to switch it when it's no not no longer an operational challenge to keep it secular or if maybe that would provide the the current alignment but still be consistent with our my my sorry i don't mean to speak our, our my um preference for a secular well okay. you know and i think if that's the case we'd have to revisit c as well because i don't think you can say two weeks including december 25th well december 25th is a federal holiday so, so i feel comfortable um, keeping December 25th as on the calendar, on a secular calendar. Okay. Um, I know, I mean, yeah, I, obviously then we could technically go on December 24th, um, depending on where, if we were keeping a 10 day instead of a, a two week break, um, I guess there could be an argument that giving December 24th off isn't necessarily secular, but you could still waffle it between, um, or sorry, not waffle it, uh, bracket it between December 25th and January 1st. So, okay. All right. So let's move on to uh, now we're at letter, letter E, and these are um, holidays. To just give a brief uh, brief background on this, um, we have the traditional holidays that we've had: Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day, and so um, Juneteenth. I believe that is a state law, right? Is that right, Dr. Noonan? Th yes, Juneteenth is is required, and and. You'll see, I think, somewhere later in the policy, the idea would be also that we would be done with school before Juneteenth. Um, so some of the um, 
recently we added in uh, religious holidays. And so, um, you know, we obviously heard from the community on both sides, people who were very um, grateful for those holidays being recognized and other um, families who found having those days off that um, just tend to fall within a couple weeks of each other in September found them disruptive. And, um, you know, we've, we've heard the community center did really help us out with trying to um, provide camps and things. And, and I know that we've heard from people in the community who, you know, may not be able to afford camps or might have students with special needs who can't attend those camps. Uh, so, you, you know, I, th I think we all know that those are, um, those holidays, um, you know, are very important to, to some people in the community. And I think other pe people in the community, though, though they understand, um, and they're not disparaging of, of people's, you know, uh, religious um, uh, persuasions, but that they feel that it is a burden and disruptive that early in the school year. So just to um, remind everyone, the school year coming up, we have those, um, we have Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur off. We do not have um, Indigenous Peoples Day. The, the students will be in class this year on that day. And then um, also on Veterans Day. So that was sort of this, this upcoming calendar that was one of the way, because the year before we had all of the religious, the new religious holidays, along with Indigenous Peoples Day and Veterans Day, um, and I think election. So, we, so sort of I think the compromise this year was to not to have school on Indigenous Peoples Day and Veterans Day. Um, so I will just let whoever, Ms. Tice, do you want to go ahead and, and kick it off since you already <laughs> showed your cards on the last discussion? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'll, I'll also echo um, Dr. Ortiz's sentiments that I really did appreciate hearing from so many people in the community. I know we asked for it and we meant it, and I'm glad to hear from so many people. Um, it's just one of the many decisions that we make here that we know we can't please everyone. Um, there's no easy answer. Um, so I just I've wrestled with it and I've really come, um, I've gone back and forth in my thinking. And the only thing that really feels um, right to me is to just keep it secular. And I know that that's a real challenge to, um, to some pieces of equity. And it's not um, always, it's not, I mean, I guess sometimes I struggle with when do you, when do you give voice to the, the minority and when do you, see what's the most good for the most people. And I just think with fourth, this is an academic calendar um, and we want our kids to be in school with a predictable, stable, safe environment um, for the most people that just choosing federal holidays, which we have decided, however you feel about them, we've decided as a community and as a nation that these are the holidays that we collectively celebrate um, and acknowledge that those are the days that we should um, in our public schools give off. And I do, I, I say that with full sensitivity to how challenging it is, especially for staff um, who want to take those days off. And if and whatever we can do to ease the burden for staff that want to take, you know, if we, if we make them religious observance days or we come up with some sort of approach to those, um, those common religious holidays um, to ease the burden of taking the days off and whether it's, you know, no field trips, no quizzes, no tests for students, no, no new learning, those sorts of things. But um, for staff, I know that there's nothing you can totally take away for the challenge of having to leave a sub plan and leave your class for the day. I know that, but if there are any, is if there's anything we can do to make that any easier for staff, I would be all for it. Um, so I would just say we take off um, 
federal holidays, uh, which would include, um, you know, Inauguration Day uh, on the years that that applies. And uh, it's not a federal holiday, but I think we have to take Election Day off if our schools are. I, I think we have to take Election Day off since our schools are polling places. I don't know if we only have to do that on, on presidential years or. I believe we only do it on presidential elections. And okay. that's just at the request of the the. Um, Registrar's office. Right. So I'd be sensitive to that request as well. That seems um, the least we can do for our democracy. Thank you, Ms. Tice. Any other thoughts on this one? Mr. Reidinger, do you have any thoughts on this one? <coughs> I don't know that I have anything unique to add. Um, I, you know, I, like Ms. Tights, am, am drawn to the notion of a secular calendar, um, but it's, it's very troubling for me to say we would go to a, we might go to a secular calendar, this is what Dr. Gould was saying before, but might keep spring break coupled to Easter. Um, I, you know, I, I know that there are secular reasons for all of that, um, and that doing you know, doing otherwise than that might would cause might would cause operational problems. But it just it feels it feels inequitable to me to uh, align that much with the majority religion, a religion which I happen to share. Um, but it, 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 it troubles me. So uh, I don't know that I have anything particularly useful to say here other than it would clearly be, you know, I, think, I think we have legitimately heard that um, the additional cultural holidays are, uh, a lot of parents and families find them disruptive for education. Other parents and families struggle because of special needs kids or because they can't get childcare. Um, but that, for families that share those holidays, the the recognition of them um, has been important, and the you know the lack of disruption in school has been important to their students. So, um, I, I'm I'm I think I'm 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 leaning towards going with the sense of the board on this, but I I just I can't say that I've come to a, a set as settled a conclusion yet um, as Ms. Tice has. Thank you, Mr. Reidinger. Um, yes, Ms. Silverman. Uh, one question for Mr. Reidinger. Um, what were the brackets again on this one? Well, this was just to, you know, to insert, like, for example, I, I missed, I think, Inauguration Day, but the, uh, it, it, it was to include all of the possible holidays. Some of them are fairly certain because they're federal holidays and other ones are optional. So. The brackets were holidays that might or might not be included. So, is Veterans Day a, a federal holiday? I think so. Well, Veterans Day is a federal holiday, but it's not a holiday that we have always recognized as okay. part of the calendar. Okay. Um, so, I agree uh, with Ms. Tice, um, a lot of her sentiments on the holidays. Um, I know I've spoken a lot about this before, and it's something really important to me. Um, just to reiterate my comments from the past, I am a Jewish 
woman. I um, celebrate both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I do not work on those two days. Those are the only two days of the year that I have an out-of-office on my email. I do not send my kids to school on those two days. But I absolutely believe that the schools should remain open on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and um, the other religious holidays as well for continuity of education, for having a student-centered calendar, and to do what's best for our kids. Um, I know it's been talked about to hire babysitters, um, which you know is out of reach for many. Uh, the community center has been offered as a as a remedy. Um, uh, the community center, which doesn't bus, the community center, which doesn't accept children under the age of six, so that um, doesn't allow our Jesse Thackeray children plus our kindergartners to go to the community center. Um, you know, it, it's from nine to three. There, you know, it, while that is a great option for many, it's not a great option for for many. Um, not even just a few, but for many. Um, the real hardship that having individual days closed for schools this isn't just adding on an extra day in the summer or something where continuity of child care is a lot easier to find when days are connected to each other but having one day off during the week um, is a lot harder for people to find child care um, I'm a single mom as well um, you know I, I do have um, my, my children's father living here who's a great help I can't say I do it all on my own but um, doing this as a single mom also prevents a, a significant challenge of having these extra days off. Um, so I am in favor um, because of because of the inequities that closing on those days per, uh, has on families that are disadvantaged or maybe not even disadvantaged but are working on a tighter budget this year especially um, and don't want to spend they have the money to spend on the extra care but maybe don't want to spend you know a few hundred we're talking you know hundreds of dollars here at the end of the day um, on the extra care um, the special education kids kids with IEPs that that depend on services um, for all those reasons I uh, agree with Ms. Tice I am in favor of being closed for federal holidays um, that includes election day um, I, I Dr. Noon, I think Election Day is closed each year, isn't it? I, I need to go back and, um, Kristen? So we typically hold our fall conferences over Election Day, which is a Tuesday, and the Monday preceding that. that so we've been off, but it's because there are teacher work days um, used for conferences, specifically at the elementary level. Okay, that's what I thought. So, um, you know, using those for teacher work days, uh, following the federal holiday schedule, um, and remaining open to our kids and our families for for the other uh, days, you know, between the start and end date, whatever we determine. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Anyone else on this section? Yes. Um, yeah, I think admittedly, I'm still on the. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to address this issue in terms of the religious holidays. I do appreciate the. Um, the different arguments, and I feel like we are looking through a lens of either um, a secular calendar, an operational calendar, or an academic calendar. 
um, or an inclusive calendar. And so I, I think it just depends on which uh, glasses that we want to wear. And it's, and it's hard. I think we have to look through all of them um, to make this decision. Um, I think I, I really do appreciate the feedback from the community to Dr. Ortiz's and, and Ms. Tice's point. Um, I have heard from a significant amount of parents from the um, parents of students with uh, special needs. And I, I do, I know we keep saying that that group as as you know as one of the groups that we try to think about and and uh and keep in mind i would say the feedback that i've received from a number of the those parents um has been pretty significant and pretty challenging in the sense of any of the solutions that at least i proposed to try to accommodate for the extra holiday um they are quick to remind me that that none of those will work for for their children that you cannot have uh, parks and rec or you can't have babysitters or you can't have different uh, child care solutions that are traditional for, for, for that could be used, that it has to be paraprofessionals, it has to be specialists. Um, and so it is quite difficult even for an extra four days to try to accommodate. And so I think the, um, you know, not just the anecdotes, but the understanding of this community is something that um, has really been in the forefront of my mind in terms of how we discuss this and how the decisions are made. Again, I'm glad we're not voting tonight, um, but but I know that that's this in particular. This is the issue that I'm really wrestling with: is how do we accommodate um, uh, parents of children with special needs to to try to really adjust um, uh, for for the extra holidays? Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. Yeah, this is a tough one for me, and I'll echo um, both Vice Chair Gould and Mr. Reiginger. I I really don't see how we continue to have spring break tied with Easter and not give these religious holidays off. So I, you know, um, and I think, I think that really blows it all up if we decouple it from Easter, um, for, as Dr. Noon said, you know, trying to get substitutes in for a week because, uh, staff are having to take off because they're now their kids have different spring breaks. Um, but I really don't, you know, see how, how you can how you can do it, how you can not give off those religious holidays, but continue to, to tie that Easter, that spring break to Easter. So I think this is one we'll have to just continue. You know, we're, we're, that's why we're not voting tonight. And, I, and I'm going to uh, talk with uh, Dr. Dimmick as well. And, um, you know, we'll we'll continue um, this discussion um, and. Uh, you know, we had, we did, as I said, this year we did sort of comp, we did do a compromise um, by pulling out, which was an improvement over the previous year by pulling out the two federal holidays so that there were, was not quite as disruptive this coming fall um, as it was the previous fall. So, um, you know, that was, that was one approach, but we'll just, um, you know, we're going to have to eventually figure this one out. And so I'll talk to Dr. Dimmick and then um, we will continue um, discussions about this piece in general. And, and, you know, again, welcoming input from the public, uh, you know, it, and, and we certainly by this discussion do not want to pit one segment of the community against another part of the community. So we're just trying to do the best um, that we can. And, and, um, and I think you put it well, Vice Chair Gould, the different lenses. Um, there's very, there's, the academic piece, the operational piece, the inclusion and equity piece, and it's it's tough. So uh, we'll continue this this conversation. This is we knew this this subject E was going to be our, our item E was going to be our toughest one. So we'll continue to work on that one. Uh, so moving on to uh, section F, this is oh yes, I'm sorry. 
Sorry, sorry, Drew Johnson. Just uh, I just want to say that I, I agree with uh, Ms. Tice. I would say that given that uh, fall break occurs toward the end of November and there are those teacher work days that are always going to occur right around the beginning of November that I'd probably opt out of Veterans Day as a day that we would observe as school just for the sake of the disruption. Not to say that there isn't value to honoring our veterans and we can find ways to do that, but I think just in the spirit of what we've been talking about here, that you know, one of the reasons why, at least I, I, I never told, I don't know if this was the rationale, but I always understood it to be the case that Veterans Day wasn't a day off, was that because there were a whole, other, there were a whole lot of other days in November that were off and we needed to make sure to keep kids in school. So that's one piece there. And then I think the issue that I have with with tying it to Easter, you know, there's really only one super holy day during that week, and that's Good Friday, um, is that it's just variable. You know, now we know when it falls, fortunately, right? But it's just that, you know, that variability is something that I think at the standpoint of designing an academic calendar is something that you wouldn't necessarily want all the time. Can we accommodate it? Yes, we can. You know, if that's if it's practically the only way to go, then that's the way it is. But I don't necessarily think that it's necessarily um, a Christian choice just to align it with Easter. I think that you know, if, if that's just the you know, sometimes you just have to like just go along just because it's just going to most practically the the, the 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 most feasible solution. So you know, I think we'll have to have a further discussion about this. But I you know, I, I don't. I don't necessarily see a disconnection in logic necessarily. Well, and I think just to follow up, I think, so just to put a finer point in it, on it, I think looking at the spring break connected to Easter is not the reason we, we're talking about that is because it would align with the other school systems, not because of Easter. So, um, so it's, I mean, that's when they were, they're doing it. You know, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, you could, give that good Friday off and, and that would be your, your Easter. But it just ha so happens that that's when everyone in this Northern Virginia gives, has spring break. And so just in terms of it, 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 it becomes a workforce issue for, for Dr. Noonan, um, really. So uh, I appreciate that. And, and just for the record too, in terms of um, both Veterans Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, there's no strong um, history. We've had years where we've had both of those off, years where we've had both of them on. So there's, you know, we don't have to worry about so much. We've got flexibility with those two federal holidays for sure. Yes, Ms. Tice. Well, I'll, I'll just say, uh, just to be clear, I was hoping, I mean, I was saying that I support just taking off all federal holidays as a blanket policy, um, which would include Veterans Day. Right, I understand. Okay, so um, we're moving on. Um, so F is pretty straightforward. Uh, yeah, please. Can I can I just clarify on F just to make sure everybody understands those that might be watching, um, and also for the board. And this comes up every year, and I don't know why we can't seem to get the message across in a really clear way. Um, the state requires us to start a calendar with 180 instructional days. In the event that there is um, a snow day or some sort of hurricane or some reason that we have to close schools then we revert to 990 hours but of total instruction. But we can't start with 990. So anytime we build a calendar, we have to start with 180 days, just so everybody is aware of that. Great, thank you, Dr. Noonan. Uh, and then sticking with you, Dr. Noonan, on uh, section four, superintendent may propose up to five teacher work days or professional days. Does that sound 
I'd like to go back to, um, if it's all right with the chair, um, take four and five um, back for some conversation with the team a little bit further. Sure. Uh, it might be worthy of clarifying the early release Wednesdays in the policy. Um, there's been some question um, about whether or not there should be early release Wednesdays on weeks where there are four days. Um, we have a standing rule, um, a rule of thumb, that if it's a four-day week, that those four days are full days, um, and we only do the half days on um, those weeks where there's five full days. And it might be worth codifying that in your policy um, or making some other determination. So, No, I, I actually was going to bring that up myself. Um, this is... Uh, I think it needs to be put into the policy. You know, I, I've um, we've heard from many, um, specifically elementary families, um, since I've been on the board about um, really not so much support for early release Wednesdays at all. And you know, could we just go not have early release Wednesdays anymore? And so you know, we had a compromise that was put into place before actually Dr. Noonan's arrival. Uh, that that Wednesday of, of a week, a four-day week, would be a full day. And um, I feel that that's, you know, I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, a three-and-a-half-day school week is, is not enough, in my opinion. So I, I would like to put that into the policy. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts on that. Yes, Ms. Silverman. Are, Dr. Noonan, this goes to you. Are we the only jurisdiction that has early release Wednesdays? It, I pulled area. I pulled my region colleagues two weeks ago, and we're the only school division that does half day Wednesdays in the entire region. Um, and beyond that, um, not one of our schools in the region give half days in that first week either anymore. So that's also something that's gone away. But yes, we are. It feels to me, it feels a little old fashioned um, that you know, mom is home waiting for the kids to come home on an early release Wednesday. Um, that's how it feels to me. That's the sentiment that I get from that. Um, I have been really racking with this because I also know how important it is for teachers to have that planning time and if they don't have other planning time. Um, I was wondering if there was an option of moving early release Wednesday to early release Fridays. Um, I do believe that it is a little bit easier for working parents to be home on a Friday afternoon than it is on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, I'm just trying to figure out a way to make this work for both teachers and you know teachers and staff, but also for uh, the families that are um, really detrimentally affected by this. I, I'm not prepared to answer that question. Um, I, I think it's probably a conversation for the board because that you know, that would become a policy question that you're raising. So I kind of would leave it to you all to have that conversation. And I'm happy to provide some some thoughts after I've had a chance to think about it a little bit. Okay, I was just wondering with you if there's operational issues on that. But um, well, then I guess I, I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. my instinct is there would be operational issues with half day Fridays from a, from an attendance perspective, um, both staff and students, um, because it easily turns into a three day weekend. Um, you know, you can, that would be, that's my instinct. I, again, I don't have any data that would support that. It's just my, my, my instinct would be, it would be a throwaway, a throwaway day. That makes sense. Um, again, I'm trying to figure out a way to make it work. Um, 
I really am in favor of getting rid of half day Wednesdays, no matter how many other days of school there are. Um, so I'm going to just start with that anchor. I was trying to figure out a way to make it work. Otherwise, um, I understand the operational problems it might cause to move it to Fridays. But, um, you know, again, we're the only jurisdiction in the area. It feels very old-fashioned to, um, to think that there's a parent at home waiting for the school bus on Wednesdays. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not claiming to have the right solution. I'm just presenting the problem. Um, you know, is the solution getting rid of half-day Wednesdays? God, I can just imagine the angry emails I would be receiving from teachers and staff. I understand the, the need of them from their point of view, but I also understand the, the tremendous hardship it causes on families. So I'm kind of stuck. Yeah, I, I think that'd be a great conversation since you all set the calendar for your board colleagues. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Noonan, you know, among your neighboring jurisdictions, do you have a sense for how in making that transition to full day weeks, um, they were able to replace the staff planning time that they that they got, you know, that would go away? Funny you should ask that. <laughs> um, I was the assistant superintendent for instruction when we made that shift in Fairfax away from half days to full days. Um, and the way that we were able to uh, moderate the planning periods um, actually was through adding some additional what was called triple T time, which is called time for teaching. Um, and that triple T time was specials time or, or encore time so that it gave teachers more of an opportunity to send kids to Encore. Um, a, a wider variety of Encore classes um, were happening throughout the building, so more teachers would have some additional planning time. Um, I'll, I'll just share that one of the big wins that um, both Paul and Tim were able to accomplish this year going into next year is they have consolidated all of the planning time for teachers and utilize their um, their encore teachers in a way to provide opportunities for long blocks of planning at our elementary um, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, to the extent that um, it's the most amount of planning time our teachers have had since I've since I've been here. So, if we were to do some sort of an analysis of of the planning time, there's quite a bit there. Okay, thank you. So there's, there's, there are feasible solutions, obviously. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's just that we need to work them out. It could be budgetary. There could be budgetary implications. Okay, very good. If I might, Chair. Yes, please. <clears throat> the only thing I note is uh, the, the language that I wrote here was essentially a do-no-harm language, that you know, the policy would stay what the policy was. Um, and this this policy would not change that I, I I think the early release Wednesday's conversation is an important one I don't know that it needs to be resolved in the overall policy here um, it, it may be it may be efficient to do it that way but you know, it might be that's better for a second bite um, once the the calendar policy is revised because the, the, whether they're early release Wednesdays or not is not going to overly affect um, the other elements of the policy itself. So up to the board on, on how it wants to approach that, of course. Thank you, Mr. Anger. Okay. Um, so we're, so we'll, 
table that for right now. We're at uh, section six, last day of school considerations. Uh, the proposed calendars will have a last day of school before Juneteenth, and the last day of school will not be on a Monday if practical. Uh, any thoughts on this? I know, no, I know a previous school board had, I think, given June 15th, Dr. Noonan, as the goal to be done by. That's correct. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, um, in recent years, it doesn't seem that, that um, there's been as much uh, energy behind when we end as when we start. So, uh, and I think the idea of, of ending um, before Juneteenth was just in the sense that it's, it would be hard to get people um, to come back after the Juneteenth holiday. You might have people just taking those last couple days, students just taking those last couple days off. So, any thoughts on last day of school considerations? Yeah, I've, uh, maybe a question again for Dr. Noonan. Um, is there any correlation in the start week in August to the end week in June? I remember you said a couple meetings ago, there's essentially, we're talking about six permutations of the calendar because there's not too much we can do. So, is this section six really linked to when we start? It, it, <laughs> Yes, and, and it depends. It depends on what you do with Section E um, and what you do with Section C. Um, if you have a shorter winter break and you don't observe the holidays that are in Section E and we start two weeks before Labor Day, it could be a lot earlier than Juneteenth. I, I, I think it just is a matter of how you want to play it. So if we start the second week or two weeks before August, we do D all of the above with two weeks spring break and all the religious holidays, then section six, the last day of school, it would it would almost go till mid June. It would be yes, and I think okay. it'd probably be tight. It'd be tight. Okay, that's good. Thanks. Yes, Miss Silverman. I think it's difficult to delve into this issue if we don't have the start date, the the holiday issue, the winter break issue resolved. I mean, Juneteenth seems really late if we're starting two weeks before Labor Day, if we have a 10-day winter break, if we're open on all the holidays, um, then Juneteenth sounds extremely late. But if we start after Labor Day and we have a two-week winter break, you know, it, 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 so it's, it's hard for me to judge this, option, this, this, um, this point because we don't know the other issues mm -hmm. well, historically yeah, um, well, not historically but prior to the last two years and and when we started after Labor Day there was a two-week winter break there was a week-long spring break and there was a three-day Thanksgiving um, and none of these holidays were observed and we ended on some day some cases the 17th or 18th of June um, you know, there's just a defined number of days in, in, that, that can, can be in school. So I think, you know, I, I do think it's fair to say this, that if you start before Labor Day by two weeks and you do all the things that are in E, a, a two-week winter break, a spring break, a fall break, you can end by, we can end by Juneteenth, but it'll be pretty close. If you decide to start two weeks prior to Labor Day, and you don't do all the things that are in E, and you potentially shorten the winter break, 
I, I think it's fair to say that that two-week start would probably be more likely to result in a two-week earlier release, It'd be almost one for one. Um, so probably the first week of June. So I think, I, I think it's just a matter of how much you want to put in. Um, but I do think all of it's doable by Juneteenth. It just depends on, on, um, on how much you want to recognize. Yeah, I think, you know, I wish Dr. Dimmick was here, but my understanding is that um, Fairfax now has added in more holidays than are listed in E. And so that even this coming year, even though they're starting a week earlier than us, they're going to end the same time because they they went to the, uh, they added even more holidays than we have listed here on E. So, um, so I, I understand your point, Ms. Silverman. I think this is... Um, the yeah I th I th but i th i think the goal here is that you know w we will have to look at that start and the holidays and all that stuff i think the the goal here is mr reiner's point is that we we don't want to go um past that past that 19th because it, it does um it does pre present then a more of a, a logistical issue of trying to get you know having a holiday two days before school ends and then getting people kids back so um so i think this is probably the bare minimum here and and you know if we end before you know june 10th great um, but i think this is sort of like the the we want to at least do this um but you're right i mean everyone's right of course all these other pieces are going to have to fall in line with that so for for now we'll just keep this as is and then we'll you know we'll see if we need to to change any of that as we make some other decisions um so the proposed calendar, uh, so this is going to, might affect too, whether we're going to do the two uh, years at a time. Um, and uh, so I think the rest of this is, I don't know, Mr. Ranger, do you have any other um, comments about the rest of the policy? Is it more technical? You mean the section? Yeah, just, just the close, I think just, these are, uh, I think, pretty standard pieces, just the, the policy. Well, yeah, the, the idea was that the, you know, there would be, the rules would be clear enough that the superintendent would be able to propose a recommended calendar for each year and would provide that recommended calendar. Um, and that, you know, you wouldn't need option A, option B, option C. There would just be the recommended calendar and the board could say yes or no or make modifications if it wanted to. However, um, that, you know, some odd set of circumstances might come about in an alignment of the planets, maybe where it's the latest Labor Day and Christmas falls on an odd year, that there actually would be a significant problem with the proposed rules. You know, and in that case, sort of in the exceptional case that the 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 the, the result of the policy was not something anybody would want, rather than just having the superintendent present that and say, here's a terrible calendar, I hope you'll tell me to do something different, um, that he could actually or she could say, in this case, um, this doesn't really work, and here's why. And so here, if the board wants to depart from um, the, the policy for the reasons that I've identified, you know, late Labor Day, early Labor Day, whatever it is, here's another option for you. But that would be an exceptional case, but it'd be a, it'd be a trap door that would be available so that you wouldn't be caught in an awkward situation. Thank you. Any other comments before we close out this 
discussion for this evening. Okay, so uh, I will um, be in touch with Dr. Dimmick, get her, get, oh, I'm sure she'll watch this uh, conversation, but then get her feedback. And I'll follow up with you all in writing um, and maybe include some new language and some, you know, where we're in pretty much agreement, where we still need to work on different areas we still need to work on. And again, you know, the idea would be that we would be able to have a policy. Well, I guess the first reading, um, Mr. Reinger, I, and I don't know, I think we're still a little up in the air about our July business meeting, but if we did, um, I think definitely a first reading um, by the first business, the regular meeting in August, and then hopefully be able to vote on this at the first meeting in September. Um, maybe is is a realistic timeline. I don't, what do you think about that, Mr. Reidinger? I, I think that's right. I, would, I think we, we probably want to get to a place after another meeting where we could ask Dr. Noonan to, for example, produce what the 2023-2024 calendar might look like under the policy so that we could get a look to see, you know, what it actually would be, because it's always nice to make decisions in the presence of a real projection and some facts, as opposed to, you know, a supposition. So, if we if we if we do the job and we have a clear enough set of rules, um, and we're not actually saying we're approving the calendar, I think that might be a, a, a useful exercise to do. Um, so, right. That's that sounds like. A, would that be okay with you, Doctor? Yeah. No, that sounds great. So, so if you did like. Let's just say you did a first reading the first week in September mm -hmm. or first meeting in September at the next work session in September, I could come with a draft example of a calendar based on that first reading document and any feedback that you gave. Mm -hmm. And then you could adopt the policy in October um, and we could, uh, you know, we could turn it. We could turn a calendar around pretty quick. I mean, once you give well, us you already have sort of a draft, right? Right, and once you give us the parameters, right. it, you know, we can we can get a calendar done pretty quickly. Well, and, and one would think that it would the process would be much faster after that because we're not we've are not going through all the that's right stuff we usually do at that time. <laughs> yes. Oh, Miss Silverman. Not to add more work to your uh, plate here, um, it might be worthwhile to look at more than just two years out on the calendar if we really want this policy to work to work for us as a community for years to come i don't know how many years into the future we do need to examine but i'm i'm hopeful that we don't want to amend the policy after two years and so i think that we might need some more foresight of more than two years so kind of kick that to all of you like how many years do you want me to put together do you want me to put together if it's two? easy because we've given you the guidelines um how many? I, I don't, um, you know, five maybe? Um, I, again, if, it, if it's easy. Can we do, can we do the, I think we could do three. Pretty, okay. Pre, we could do three based on whatever the policy recommendations that you have in place. Mm -hmm. um, we could probably do three. Because I actually did this on my own a little bit, mm -hmm. um, just to kind of get a feel for where the mm -hmm. days lie and everything and what two weeks sure. before Labor Day actually looks like in 2028. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to kind of do a little bit of digging into that. And some years, 
falls a little bit better than others sure. on, on some of these issues. That's why I bring it up. Of course. And, you know, one thing, Ms. Silverman, you know, eventually this board will be, there will be different people at the table. And so just as I know you all are grateful to have this opportunity to give feedback, we don't want to plan it so far in advance that new school board members, you know, I mean, they, they might want to have a shot at revisiting it you know i hate to say it but <laughs> policies can be changed so um but anyway just my point being is i think i think three years would be you know without getting too far down the road so and any other comments before we close this this part out okay all right so we will um continue and i think that's a good um dr Nina, i think that's a great idea is to try to have first reading ready for that first meeting in september the second meeting in september you would have some sort of draft to us to see how it really on the ground does this work uh and then hopefully in october we'd be able to vote and vote on the policy does that timeline sound good to everyone okay okay great all right so that wraps up this part of the agenda Okay, and I guess that would be bring us to section five. Uh, Chair, if I might raise a, a, a point about the agenda. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I was just wanted to, recognizing this is a little out of left field, but given the, the hour, um, I, I, I question at least, perhaps the, the rest of the board is feeling more energetic than I am since I'm recovering from an illness, but I worry a little bit about having enough time and energy to devote to the critical topic of our closed meeting and wonder if um, given the late hour if we would want to reschedule either a special meeting or do it at a, uh, a future meeting where we can have um, additional time and energy to to include the topic in which case um, I might make a motion to um, strike sections five and six of the agenda for this evening for a to be rescheduled at a future date, but I, I'm in the hands of the board on whether that's a, a, an appropriate approach or not. Thank you, Mr. Ranger. That would be fine with me. Um, yes, Ms. Silverman. I second. <laughs> so so if, if that seems to be the will of the group, we do have a date on the calendar for July. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't need any of us to be there for that date in July. So if you all wanted to use that date for your executive session, and we just won't be here. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll get in touch with everyone tomorrow to see if that date works for everyone to do the executive close. And, and That's I the think, July 12th? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, that was just, that was going to be a regular business meeting, but we sort of had it on the count. We weren't really sure if we were going to have that meeting or not. So, um, But we can also do it. But you guys can meet whenever you want. Yeah, we could do it. So the beauty of an executive close is we can do it whenever we want. Um, but... So I'll be in touch with you all tomorrow. Um, oh yes, Ms. Minson. We would advertise it. Yeah, we'd also need a motion now if you're um, stopping the meeting and then going to a date certain, or if you're amending the agenda um, and get a roll call vote for that, I believe. Okay, Ms. Um, so I'll be in touch with you all, and we'll figure figure out when when to do this. Mr. Reidinger, do you feel comfortable making a motion? Yeah, I, I think it's sufficient to simply. Um, amend the agenda to strike sections five and six, and then we can leave the rescheduling to a future date that doesn't need to be covered. So unless Ms. Minson disagrees with the form, right. um, I move that we um, strike sections, we amend the agenda to remove sections five and six and proceed to adjourning the meeting this evening. 
And now I will second. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Okay. Thank you. Motion carries. Thank you, Mr. Reidinger, for, for uh, that suggestion. Can That's I, a great suggestion. Can I just get like a little formative assessment here since I know the topic? Like thumb up, thumb in the middle, <laughs> thumb down. <laughs> we'll get back oh, to no. you on that. No. I, I think Dr. Nuno was, was, was a little curious and I just said, we are tired. It's almost 11 o'clock. <laughs> All right. Thank you all very much. Have a good evening. And thank you to the staff for staying so late with us this evening. And thank you, Michael, if you're still on. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Oh, there you are, Michael. I didn't see you. Thank you so much.